Hey everyone. Wow. That was so dead. <laughs> hey everyone. Live up. I know, man. Wicked. That's the energy that I want. Like a little bit more than that. Hey everyone. Yeah. That's better. That's the level that we need to be. How is everyone? Man? Good. How are you, man? I'm alright, man. Monday, isn't it? Yeah. Okay, you Same as. Same as. Tommy me die. Tom, Tom, just tired, man. I'm tired. I'm alright. Cool, man. I'm. I'm so excited, you know. I'm actually really excited to see you lot here because so many unfamiliar faces in the room, which is wicked. And thank you so much for coming down. For those that don't know, uh, my name is Bilal. This is... Quirky. What's going on? Patrick. Tom. What are you doing today, man? What do you mean, what am I doing, man? <laughs> what, do you want me to say, oh, my name's Tom, Tommy Dyer, all of that stuff. And Come on, all the AKAs. Yeah, yeah AKA. Waiting. We're not doing the AKAs today. We can if you want. So today you'll be informal, Tom. You see formal. me in a Look suit. Look at the blazer, man. Look at the suit, like, come on, man. It's not a West Ham top. That I'm used to this. No, 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 no. <laughs> we'll, we'll keep it, keep it formal today, innit? We'll keep it formal. Cool. Um. Well, yeah. I'm, I don't know what you're doing right now, but us guys will know each other because we met each other at uni. For those that don't know our story, um, we're four guys who happened to go to Cambridge University, and that's where we met. Um. Thank you, Ben. Ooh. Um. That little name drop right there. But um, we met at uni. And set up this podcast sort of in response to a number of things that we've been spoken about, about the way that like young non-white men in particular have been perceived in the media. Um, and by the way that we could sort of see conversations happening sort of above our heads, but about people like ourselves. So we set up a podcast a couple, a year ago now. Mad. A year ago. Yeah, We're one birthday. year old. Happy birthday. Happy birthday. <laughs> That's so crazy. Um, about a year ago in response to a lot of that stuff. And by the grace of God and by you guys' support, we've been carrying on ever since. Pastor Bilal. <laughs> Amen. Wow. Um, but this is our second live show. So we're really, really excited. Woo! So like, bring the energy up. Yeah, yeah, Thank yeah, you yeah. so much. And we're, we're actually well excited today to be going behind, taking off the mask of masculinity. We're joined by Ben and Alex. Give them a woo. Woo, woo. You're giving yourself a woo, man. Woo, woo. I'm loving it, Ben. I'm, I'm so ready for you to be coming and sit in it. Um, and they're going to be joining us in a little bit to talk a bit more about us, about getting under the mask. Why don't we kick it off here? I want to ask you, man. Mm-hmm. Ooh, getting deep, getting yeah, real man. deep. Um, what does being a man mean to you? Brother, it's a tough one, man. I was, I was thinking about this a lot this weekend because I was thinking, right, we got a, you know, a live podcast on Monday, so I should have a, a little think about this. Um, when we talk about like manhood and like sort of someone was sort of saying was talking about what it is to be a good man and I was sitting there thinking like it's a weird one for me because it's like I don't understand why virtue is like gendered like you know you have to be a good man or a good woman or I mean you don't really I mean the good woman trope is a slightly different one it's sort of kind of tied to domesticness and all that kind of stuff when it comes to like the stereotype of what a good man is I had to think about that for a sec and kind of understand why why that is why that is gendered and to be honest like to cut a long story short because I was thinking about it for a while I was like well I don't think I want to be defined as a good man like I don't think goodness and virtue should be gendered um I'd like to just be seen as a as a good person or a person that at least tries to do good. Um, so yeah, a bit of a kind of gone a bit left with the the whole masculinity thing. But I mean, 
that's that's my position. Let's let's debate from there, I guess. Sorry, I'm just thinking because I said to you, what does being a man mean, right? Mm. And you jumped to the virtue thing. Yeah, that is true. Yeah. And I want to know why you did that. Whenever sort of whenever like masculinity comes up, one thing that I always sort of hear people say is, you know, this is what a real man does, right? And normally that is kind of like virtue signaling, like this is what you should do if you are a man. Now obviously we understand that there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff tied to masculinity which is um nefarious, which is negative, which is which is damaging. Um, so it's almost like it's a bit of an oxymoron, I think. Or is that the right term? It's it's it's, it's yeah, I, I guess so. It's like looking at masculinity through this lens of you know what it is to be a man, and a lot of it, a lot of what's tied to it is you know you know this is what you should do, this is the right thing to do. But when we look at masculinity, when we unpack masculinity, there are a lot of um, negative or at least um, problematic things um, related to it. So, yeah. I think the, the, the issue of virtue comes up regardless. Like, when, whenever you're talking about what it is to be X, um, especially when it comes to, I think, to men, it's like we expect it to, to be this good thing, but then again, it's like, at the same time, masculinity is... Not, I, don't, I don't know if it's inherently good. Mm. It's, a weird, it's a proper weird one for me because, like, <clears throat> I guess the simple way to describe would just be as far as the biological sense of it. So kind of graduating from a boy to a man, kind of go through puberty, get facial hair, whatever. And um, it's weird, like, kind of, as Patrick was saying, there seems to be more of an attachment of characteristics and actions that you have to do in order to be considered a man and graduate from the idea of being a boy. And for me, that's typically been around taking on responsibility. So taking ownership of the actions you take, but also thinking about more than just yourself. So in some ways, and I guess even through just like media that I've consumed, I've always attached manhood with when you have children and when you become a father. Um, because that's kind of seen as when you have to kind of look outside of yourself to um, provide, essentially. And that kind of links into a lot of the um, kind of, characteristic of characteristics of masculinity, which is the idea of being a provider. Um, so, yeah, I don't think it's, it's, it's a very difficult one to, to, to kind of boil down because at times, for instance, with, I feel like with certain cultures, there's a clearer there's a clear distinction. So there's rites of passage, which means, okay, at the age of 14 or whatever age it is in your culture, you go through these certain activities, whether it be um, kind of public speaking or doing even sometimes like quite physical, um, physically challenging things. And then after you come out the end of it and you're a man, in Western cultures, there isn't such a thing. So it becomes, you kind of have this extended boyhood and then, you kind of have to come up with your own definition of what it means to be a man. It's very what subjective. Would, what would you say are, do we have any like rites of passage as, as men in the West? Yes. Because 
there are moments when you're like, okay, rah, I'm doing this now. I'm an, what I, I would say to myself, I'm an adult. I don't know if mm. I say, well, I'm a man. Do you know what I mean? Like, mm. there's a slight difference. Like, when it comes to sort of um, responsibilities that you sort of do as a, as a grown-up, in my head, it's like, this is what an adult does. Yeah. Um, rather than, this is what a man does. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And that's, what, that's why I think it's like this extra step of sort of adding virtue to it. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Um, because you know women have to do the adult stuff that we have to do as well right so it's like why is it why is it gendered but yeah back to my original question would you say there's any sort of rites of passage that we kind of have to follow in the rest? I mean that's, none that's that to you I guys really, as well yeah, none that I really value and that I really it, take man. seriously in like if you think about like pop culture references I don't know for, for instance for women it might be when you first have your period and you're like, oh, you're a woman now and there's a whole thing about it. With men, it might be, oh, you have a bit of facial hair that comes up, whatever the case is, and you're like, okay, I'm a man that now. That came late for me, to be fair. So for I'll, real? Oh, yeah, I wouldn't have been a man. And you're compensated for it now, yeah. you're looking all right. <laughs> I'm a bit hard now, can you see? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I, I, don't, I don't necessarily feel like those apply. Like, I don't really mm. value those particular things as, okay, yeah, I'm a man now. It's a difficult one. I think, I think when it comes to identity in the West because of I mean like the history that the West has had in terms of um, immigration empire colonization everything like that identities is a lot more I wouldn't say fluid but it's like it's a bit more in flux or it's, it's been sort of um, there have been lots of different additions to identity that have come in because of, of that history Someone, um, I was going to just yeah. say, like, someone... Because I've been thinking about it, and I'm just going back to loads of conversations about masculinity in manhood. And somebody once said to me that you can't be a man until you've cried. And it was a conversation I had a long time ago with someone. And they said, just think about it. And I used to meet this person, maybe not often, but kind of once every year or so, once every two years, Person said, just think about it. You can't be a man until you've cried. I was really young. I didn't quite understand. To, to this day, I still don't understand it. But I think what the person was trying to say was it's about having and having the expression to have a, a, a sense of, a full sense of emotions. Because um, I think as men, we're not, sometimes the Western world doesn't allow us to have those kind of emotions like having um, being able to cry over something or towards someone. And until you as a as a boy have experienced that, be it grieving for someone for something, or even happy tears as well, because it doesn't have to be, ah, oh, whatever. But even being able to have some kind of depth of emotion that goes against the grain and actually mm -hmm. cry. Um, someone once said, it was a UK rapper, I think. I don't know if it was Mega Man who said it, but he was like, I can't, I don't think it was Mega Man. So so no, nice. but someone said, like, have you ever, have you ever like been, have you ever been to someone's grave and you've not cried? How can you possibly face this experience? Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And it's not just that, um, but in the sense that I think like women are encouraged to cry more than men are as children, which I don't understand why that is. Mm -hmm. Like as men, we're not encouraged to cry. It's not like, oh, you can cry, you can go ahead and cry. But as you get older and you, you go through certain things or just you allow your emotions to extend to that period of time. Because I, I think um, a part of manhood, I mean, it's a part of adulthood, but I think women, for whatever reason, 
Like the world pushes emotions on them. So they face more emotions in life or more extreme emotions, I feel. But men often aren't allowed to feel that generally. I'm generally speaking because mm. men cry as well. You know, so I feel part of that transition to manhood is being able to experience an extreme range of emotions and sometimes having tears is part of that process, I feel. But that's was, just one way of looking yeah, at it. Yeah, I hear that. I'll, the one, I'll be quick. Um, the one thing that sort of comes out of that for me is there's this dissonance because it's like you're saying um, to be a man is to sort of um, allow yourself to experience the full range of emotions. Um, but in the same breath, we're talking about how men are told to stifle those emotions. Yeah. So it's all—it's almost like we're set up to fail already because it's like, yeah. this is what it is to be a man. Like, be vulnerable, be emotional, but also don't do that. Mm. Don't do that from, you know, a young age, you're told not to cry. Yeah. Um, so, it's, yeah, it's, it's just a bit, bit of This a... is it. So um, I kind of want to bring up our first guest in a second. But before we do that, there's a quote. Has anyone ever, does anyone know who like Bell Hooks is? Yeah, if you, it's a dumb question, really, isn't it? Um, but yeah, so Bell Hooks wrote a book called We Real Cool, Cool. And I tried to finish this book, but it's one of them books where there's so much in it. And even though it's a very short book, it takes you forever to read it because every sentence is like fire. Um, and there's this one bit in it where it goes, at the center of the way black male selfhood is constructed in white supremacist capitalist patriarchy. I mean, already, like, what? Um, it's, the image, it's the image of the brute untamed, uncivilized, unthinking and unfeeling. I think that speaks to a lot of what we're talking about, right? Like there's this one hand, on the one hand, it's you're set up to fail because you're not allowed to feel emotions. But the image of manhood is this, this untamed, unthinking. And I think unfeeling is the one that gets me. But um, yeah. I kind of want to bring up Ben. <laughs> yeah, let's know, do it, man. Ben, Ben, come up on the stage, man. Uh, <laughs> you want your intro music? <laughs> ben... Um, why don't we sh well, actually? Why don't you share a mic with Kwaku for a sec? How are you doing, man? <laughs> yeah, this is cozy. I'm fine. I'm fine. <laughs> How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. Uh, I'm good. I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> are we gonna have to do this the whole time? Yeah, we can. Okay, shuffle, cool. Though. We can shuffle. Um, yeah. For those of you that don't know, like Ben does incredible stuff in the world, particularly around this space. I'm gonna let him introduce himself in a moment, but for me, this is actually really nice because. We, we actually work together. My buddy. This is nice. Like, right. This is my work friend, Ben. Um, but yeah, Ben, tell us like what you do, who you are. Um, oh, I hate that. Do you know what? I really hate this question. Um, <laughs> I do a lot of different things. So I think the reason that I'm here is because my nine to five is with an organization called, thank you so much, is with an organization called the Goodland Initiative. Um, and so we do stuff in schools and universities and corporates, um, engaging men and boys in gender equality work um, and talking about masculinities uh, in a variety of different contexts. So it's really cool work. It's really fun. Um, and then I work with Bilal for an organization called Fearless Futures, where we do like diversity and inclusion training um, in corporate spaces. Um, I run something with one, of, with one of my friends called Decology, which is anti-racist practice and critical whiteness workshops. Um, and so we're doing some work at the moment with Glasgow Museums, helping them like decolonize their spaces. Um, and then I do some sex ed when I get the time because I think it's really fun. Uh, <laughs> kids are so dumb. They're so dumb. I love them, but they are ridiculous. Um, one kid asked me why dildos are purple. I don't know the answer to that question. Who fucking knows? I don't know. But yeah, it was cool. Um, and then I do a podcast. I run a podcast with my friend Suaz, who was on the last live show. It was lit. Um, so I was here. I was just down here in the front row. Um, and 
then I do some other stuff when I get the time. But it makes me it makes me sound like I'm really busy, but I'm not that busy. It's like it's it's pretty chill. It's a pretty chill lifestyle. That CV is wild, you know. I know, it's sick, isn't it? And I can't even... Because you signed bare NDAs, isn't it? So I can't even tell you the clients, but it's lit. It's lit, bro. It's lit. And clients in the audience like, yep, that is true, man. But You did the, sign the NDA. Do you not say anything? You didn't even talk to us about the thing that has come out recently. You did a talk, What was right? that? Oh, rah. Rah. How are you going to forget? I did a TED talk. It's not that deep, man. It is deep. It's sick. If you haven't seen it, watch it because it's almost on 5,000 views. Um, so you guys will push right. it over the edge. Um, uh, but yeah, it was called Boys Won't Be Boys. Boys Will Be What they te- what We Teach Them To Be, which is a really long title, but it sums it up really well. Um, so I was talking about work and my experience of masculinity um, and a lot of the stuff we see with the boys in terms of like how they relate to being male um, and what that experience is like for them. That's nuts. So I'm kind of interested in how you got to this work? Uh, like, what was it that brought you here? Why are you working yeah, in this man. space? It was, it was chance, to be honest. Like, it was, it was luck of the draw, really. Um, so I, when I was like 15, I got, I became really religious. So I grew up in a family that like had always gone to church. Um, and I had this really weird experience where I was like, oh, God is obviously real, so I have to take this seriously. Um, it wore off eventually, but I went to... Um, uh, seminary for university. So I went and studied theology um, and youth work. Um, before that, I went to do youth work and I was like, this is a waste of time. Like they weren't teaching me anything that was new to me. So I dropped out and then I went to Bible college and I did my degree in applied theology and youth ministry was the official title. Um, and it was it was a really interesting experience. Um, and I had this like really set plan of like, I was going to leave Bible college and then go to church and work in full-time ministry with young people, do all of that kind of stuff. And then I had sex and I got kicked out. And <laughs> it's not funny because I don't know why you're laughing. It was really traumatic. No, it was quite funny. Um, so I had sex, I got kicked out and, and my plan just went to shit. Um, and I was like, oh, so I can't do that anymore. So what am I going to do? Um, and my family are like a real like community work family. So like, all of my uncles and my parents have done like youth work in the community. My mum was a social worker. Loads of my sisters are teachers. Um, and so got? I've got three. So two, not loads. Yeah, two of my sisters. <laughs> All right, is that what we're doing? Cool, no problem. Um, I'm here for it. Uh, so two of my sisters are teachers. So I was like, maybe I should just teach. Maybe that's the, the solution. But I didn't want to do any more studying. So I went to work in a school as a cover teacher to figure out if I was going to commit to doing it. And... It was just shit, man. Like after like two, I was there for two years and I just started to hate kids. Um, I don't know if any of you have worked in a school, but like the staff room is not what you think it is when you're, like when you're young, you're like, oh, it looks sick. Like I wonder what goes on in there. When you get in there, they're just like, he's a shit. I hate him. I can't believe he said that to me all day. So I was like, "Um, maybe this is not the one. Um, And then I left that job and I went to work for a sex education charity. Um, that was doing sex ed in schools, mainly in South London, which was a really good experience. Like the work was really good on paper. It was like a really dope job, but my boss was like less than ideal. Um, So I didn't really enjoy my time there. But one of the jobs that I, one of my job roles there was to develop a boys project about being a good man. And like when I was like um, interviewing for the job, I was like, this is light work. I've been doing this. I've got like, I was like, what, 2022? 
And I was like, I've got 10 years of youth experience, youth work experience. But when you grow up in church, like you start doing youth work as soon as you're old enough to do it. So like you're like 11 and leading eight year olds. And like it just carries on. So I was like, I've been doing this for like 15 years. You don't need to worry. That's so like, true, man. <laughs> Bruv, it was. And then um, I, I was trying to like, so I got the job and I sat down like first day of work to start this project or like two weeks in. And I was like, oh shit, like I don't know what to say. Um, and so I started researching, but I'm not like, a, I'm not really a research person. I don't like reading. I found out when I started UD that I was like moderately dyslexic, they say. Um, and it, it gave me an excuse for like not reading my whole life. Um, and so I, I don't like, I don't like consuming information in that way. So I was like trying to find stuff out, looking at other organizations that did similar work. Um, and I came across the great initiative, which is now the Good Lad Initiative. Um, and so I messaged them, I sent them an email and I was like, oh, can I come? Like, can we have a meeting? I want to hear about the work. And so I went to the meeting and the guy who's now my colleague, David, he just didn't give anything away. But he was like, oh, you should come to training because if you come to training, you get all the resources. So I was like, no problem. I'll go and I'll steal all the resources and put them in my project to make them better. Um, and then I went to training and it was like such a surreal experience. It was definitely for me, like my first time being in a room full of men where like you're talking honestly about the experience of being a man. Um, and when I saw the resources, I was like, shit I can't make anything that's better than this so I left <laughs> I left my job um I was I carried on working I was volunteering with them for like a year um and then a job came up and I applied for it and I got it because I'm dope at interviews um and then I started working there and so um I think it's really interesting like I never really growing up I never had a passion for like the conversation around masculinities it wasn't an issue to me um I was never like a particularly masculine like macho kid um, I don't know what kid is, but like I was, I wasn't really into like cars or football. But I was lucky because I was athletic, so I got away with it. Um, but I really liked like music and drama and art and stuff. Um, and then for me, like there's something in psychotherapy that's called like your highest context marker, which is like the issue that you see the world through, like the lens that you view the world through. And for me, that thing was always race. Um, and like I remember like growing up in school and being like that's racist you're racist racist card for you I hate you you're racist my geography teacher was incredibly racist um also my drama teacher was racist it, like actually racist but that's besides the point um and yeah that was like the main thing for me until I finished university and then I remember having a conversation with one of my sisters where she was like oh, uh, like, Benj, be careful when you're coming home. I think we went out, like, I went out with one of my friends. She's like, be careful when you're coming home. Don't walk home from the station by yourself. I was like, what are you talking about? I do that every day. Like, it's chill. Um, and then I just realized that, like, my experience and her experience were really different. Um, and there was something other than race. Obviously, race is a massive factor, but there was also other things that made it really different. Um, and I remember, like, doing modules in university about, like, the world and, like... Um, poverty globally and and just thinking like everything is fucked and like there's no it you can't just pin this on race even though that is a massive thing like there are also other factors like class was never a thing that I thought about gender was never something that I thought about like sexuality was never something religion especially was never something that I thought like prioritized or um oppressed different groups of people um and so I think the journey for me has been one of like just constantly like learning to see through different lenses and understand other people's perspectives so that's how I got here that was a long answer, bro. Sorry. <laughs> My bad. Rub of applause for Ben Hurst, everyone. <laughs> yeah. That is...
You know what? I kind of feel like we should bring Alex up, you know, and yeah. just yeah. just carry on. Yeah. Um, Alex, come up, man. Hello. It's just great because I can kind of be like a queen and be like, Mike, please. You know what I mean? I can just sit here and be like, Thank you. Um, how is everyone? How the fuck am I going to follow you, Ben? That you're was good, so man. You're good. Funny. Don't lie. I am quite good, actually. Yeah, you're funny. Lie. Yeah, I'm actually quite a funny person. So, um, do you have a question? Or wow. <laughs> you know what? I might just leave. I'll just leave you guys to it. Alex, man, thank you so much for joining us. No, it's a way. pleasure. Um, for those of you that don't know, like me and Quaku was it? yeah, me and you, wasn't it? We actually met Alex um, a couple months ago now, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, we were lucky enough to be, we were invited, one of our friends works for a law firm and they were doing diversity. So he asked us to come in and do a little talk. Um, so we went They were in, doing diversity. They were doing diversity. <laughs> to be yeah. fair, for like, for the, for the places that I've been, this place it was really wasn't good. bad. It was really, it was actually, really good. Yeah, yeah, they were trying. Yeah. Um, and we were on a panel together and it was the first time I'd met Alex. Alex is one of those people that you know about online because they pop up everywhere. Really? All the time. Yeah. I feel so famous I, right now. Yeah, we get it. Like, <laughs> I mean, you know, I'm not Rihanna. Do you know what I mean? Like, I'll take it. Alex was popping up online everywhere. And then I like, actually got to see him in the flesh. And I was like, wow, this guy's amazing. Um, and yeah, after did. sharing that panel, and we knew that we were going to be doing this one on masculinity coming up, we just had to get him involved. Um, so Alex, please introduce yourself. You don't have to be as long as Ben. Thank by the way, you. you know? No. You can be if you want to be. I love you, man. It was good though, Ben. It was good. Um, it was so funny. As I was walking here, I walked from home. Ooh, East London. Um, gentrified East London. Um, I, uh, I was trying to figure out, like, how am I going to... It's so hard when people try and ask you how to introduce yourself. And this part of my subconscious, maybe it's because I'm, I'm underslept, was like, just tell them you're the gay one. And I was like, that does not adequately represent the, like, multifaceted uh, story of my life. But basically... Um, I guess I, I have a day job, and my day job is is actually related a lot to, to the work that I do uh, outside of my job. I work for a uh, LGBT human rights organization called Kaleidoscope Trust, and if I had to say in a sentence what we do, it's extremely difficult to to explain because it's very uh, multifaceted. But in my mind, uh, we're we're decolonizing uh, LGBT human rights. So the majority of countries in the world that uh, criminalize same-sex intimacy or same-sex activity uh, do so because of the legacy of colonial laws. The majority of those colonial laws come from, anyone want to guess? Uh-oh, spaghetti -o. The white people are shook. Um, yeah, soz guys. <laughs> yeah, soz everyone. Um, but uh, yeah, so that's the work that I do in my day job, which is obviously incredibly meaningful and I'm very lucky to do it. But outside of my day job, um, I'm really interested in intersectionality uh, and intersectionality in practice. Because I don't know, um, we were just talking about doing diversity. I realized recently that we're now doing intersectionality. Intersectionality is being used as a term, which is kind of like a, people just throw it out there and they're like, did I do good? And it's like, yeah, you gotta know what it means though. Um, and so, as someone who is gay, I've, I've made that quite clear so far, I've also got the most colorful drink on the panel. Um, and as someone uh, who, who is mixed race, who is brown, who is South Asian, um, my life has been intersectional, right? I, before I knew what the word meant, I was living a, a life with various structures of oppression upon me that I didn't quite understand. I just knew that I was getting, you know, bullied for being gay and I was getting bullied for being brown and I thought that was, that was normal. I didn't realize there was a word for that. So I think, 
we're finally coming to a point in our discourse as a, as a society, at least in this country, or at least in parts of this country, where we're finally looking at the marginalized within the marginalized. And I think that's a really exciting time for those of us who, that that's our lived experience. You know, we've never, or we very rarely had a chance in history to be able to kind of be heard or seen. That's why I think when Bilal just said, oh, I'm seeing you online, that's actually quite striking to me. I'm not actually a very humble person, but it's, 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 <laughs> no, but it's very striking to me because I, if I'm being honest, I, it, it's taken me a long time to, to have created feelings about myself to think that my life was worth seeing because I grew up in a way where I was always kind of in, in, in shadow in the corner. So um, the way in which that, that interest has manifested in terms of intersectionality has been writing, speaking. Um, but what I've started to do recently is I created a YouTube channel because I, yay, YouTube. Um, it's full of weirdos though, do you know what I mean? But whatever. Um, but actually I did a bit of research. I was looking into um, uh, queer people of color YouTubers or queer YouTubers of color. That sounds a bit clunky, but oh well. And uh, there's not that many out there. There's not that many uh, LGBT people who are also people of color talking about the issues that affect them specifically. And it feels very niche. And I can understand if you don't, if you don't live a life uh, dealing with or, or, or having to constantly um, juggle those things, you'd be like, oh, I mean, it can't be that different. It's really different. It's a very different experience when you're, when you're dealing with different types of discrimination at the same time. Sometimes you, you know, you're dealing with, I'm dealing with, for example, all the time, um, uh, homophobia within communities of color, and I'm dealing with racism within the LGBT community. It's like everywhere you go, someone's like, I don't like you, you're wrong. So, you know, that is a particular experience, and it's one that I want to explore a bit more. But I looked on YouTube, and there's some really amazing comedians and, and performers who have YouTube channels, and there's always like the makeup artists, and you know, you know, like buy my slim body tea, like that whole vibe. Um, but what I realized is there wasn't many people talking about the issue, like kind of in a very self-aware way, talking about the issues that affect the community. So um, I started putting up videos and they started getting traction. Uh, and I've just been really lucky that the videos that I put up so far have, um, have seemingly, um, you know, they're not quite at uh, 5,000 views, Ben, but uh, they're getting there. Yeah, they're getting there. I'll, uh, I'll tweet them after this. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so I started looking into that. And then the other thing that I'm really passionate about, and um, funnily enough, completely coincidentally, Ben and I were both in a BBC, I am going to do a bit of a name drop. Um, ben and I were both in a BBC article today. I mean, I wasn't really, I wasn't thinking there would be a round of applause, but I, I'll, I'll, I'll take the woo. Uh, <laughs> but, um, and it was about mental health. So um, uh, Big Sean yesterday or the day before on Instagram posted a bunch of videos about um, his mental health journey over the last year. He talked about anxiety and depression. He talked about therapy. Um, and uh, Ben and I went to the BBC and, well, they actually came to us and we talked about that. But um, mental health is something that I'm extremely passionate about. I think men's mental health, and we're talking about masculinity today, I think, and I'd like to have a conversation about this, I think that um, traditional masculinity, quote-unquote, has an enormous impact on men's mental health. You know, um, suicide is the biggest killer in this country of men under 45. And I think that actually the, the, uh, the oppressive force of masculinity on us um, is actually a big factor in that, not being able to express your feelings, not being giving, given the faculties to do so or being told we can't cry. Imagine telling someone you can't cry. I mean, it's profoundly bizarre to me as someone who cries a lot. <laughs> I actually cried today because I couldn't find one of my slippers. Mm. Um, yeah, anyway. Um, 
<laughs> it's an emoji. It was the journey. Um, but um, one of the reasons that I'm I'm uh, so passionate about mental health um, is because, and I always make a point of of saying this. Um, if if you don't like suicide, block your ears. But I attempted suicide when I was 19, and I'm not saying this to make you feel uncomfortable. I'm saying this because I think it's really important. We've just talked about the fact that suicide is the biggest killer of people of men under 50, uh, 45. Sorry, and I think that. If, when, if you've been a part of that, if you've had that experience and you're not actively trying to break through the barrier of stigma, you're not helping. So I'm telling you that, that story because that's why I'm passionate about it because I, was, I obviously managed, it didn't work, <laughs> and I managed to, to break through that and um, I'm really lucky now to be able to talk about both mental health for men, but also mental health for LGBT people. We go through a lot. Being in the closet is a very traumatic experience. Having to deny, actively deny who you are because society tells you that you're not good enough. Obviously, that's going to lead, in many cases, to mental health problems. And actually, the mental health of people of color, it's a similar experience, right? If you're from a minority background, um, people are telling you, you're not good enough, you don't belong, you're not beautiful, you're not valid. You know, you're going to internalize those feelings about yourself. And if you're telling yourself that you're shit, you know, that can lead to depression, it can lead to addiction. So anyway, I think I've actually rambled pretty much as long as Ben has. But um, I'm really, really thankful to be here. And uh, I'm really looking forward to our conversation. So thank you so much for having me. Wow, man. This is nice, you know. These guys are sick. Um, but let's get to it. Let's get to it. And the title for this is Taken Off the Mask, right? And one of you guys came up with this, actually. Was it you? It was me, yeah. So <laughs> Large up me. It was you. you. You were the genius behind this name, yeah? So, can you explain? Actually, I, I kind of just went, yeah, that sounds good. And I just said, all right, that's what our event's going to be called. But I never actually asked you to explain where, where that title came from. Um, so, yeah, I feel like as men, we tend to kind of wear a front, particularly around other men. And we don't fully express maybe some difficulties and times where we're suffering. And at times I can feel like we are wearing a mask. And I feel like more and more these types of conversations are allowing us to show our true authentic selves. And I kind of liken that to that kind of removal of that mask. Um, so yeah, that's, that's really it. Pretty simple. Um, so yeah. I was watching, um, what's his name? Grayson Perry's um, documentary on, on masculinity. Um, and... There was the, the first episode. Um, he he goes to this. Um, he goes to the northeast of, of the UK, which has had like a history of um, sort of quite severe poverty and mm. and whatever else. And in that part of the UK, um, so we're talking like Newcastle, talking about Newcastle, Newcastle, Durham, Middlesbrough, those kind of areas. Um, cage fighting or MMA is really really popular, and um, a lot of the guys um, they turn to it because of the hardship that they faced. Um, but one thing he sort of identified in in the first episode of this documentary series, because he goes to other other places and other contexts, um, but he says that um, the men here have sort of um, sort of put on this kind of armor of this sort of traditional masculinity, i.e., sort of using sort of bravado and violence and, and strength and whatever, um, and it, it it sort of almost acts like a kind of like a callus, like you know when like on your hand or your feet, like when you sort of wear a piece of your skin out, it sort of forms this protective layer because because of the the, the hardship and the resistance. And he was saying um, the history of hardship there, i.e. sort of the kind of mining communities and then after that sort of collapse under Thatcherism and whatever, it's like a, almost like a coping mechanism 
um, this sort of masculinity kind of shields you from um, kind of all the sort of trauma uh, and all the sort of difficulty that you have to to, to sort of face. And I, I was sort of like I I kind of I could see obviously where he was coming from and I could understand that. Um, but it's just interesting to me that. Um, we kind of have to do this thing where we we have to create an armor which is at the same time protecting us, but also again, kind of going back to what I was saying before, um, kind of detrimental to us as well. Um, so I was just sort of wondering, you know, like what you guys thought about that. No, that's. I was just going to say that's what. Um, I don't know if anyone's seen the Anthony Anthony Joshua interview on the Breakfast Club. I don't know if anyone's seen. Oh, it's yeah, pretty yeah. interesting, mm-hmm. but you know when he's talking about Big Baby Miller, yeah, and he said he found it funny that. Um, uh, Big Baby said how he lets the cockroaches eat before he does. And he was saying that in that split second, AJ realized that that was um, Big Baby's pain mechanism, that he had got himself into this mind state where he could take on so much pain because of said trauma that Big Baby had gone through in his life. Mm. So AJ said he knows he can't, um, knock him out in six, seven, eight. He'd have to go the distance and sort of, you know, like do 10, 11, 12 because this guy is able to take on so much pain because of the fact that's the mindset that he's been able to put himself in. Yeah. And it's almost like we've seen it with boxers like Tyson Fury where these guys cannot box to save their lives. Technically, they're not good boxers, but they have this incredible mind state where they can take on so much pain where you can knock them out and they can get back up again, where I don't want to say any normal human being, but obviously boxing is different because it's an, it's an extreme sport, but it's the mindset that he's put himself in where he has allowed himself to inflict so much pain that the very thing that should hurt him is actually protecting him before it hurts him. Because what happens is he's given himself this extra buffer where it's pain, 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 until the pain is so unbearable where someone knocks him out. And that was what he was saying. So AJ was like, this guy can't fight, but he's got a lot of heart. Mm. Um, But it's not heart. It's just he's made himself so numb. And I feel that pain sometimes. And one of the things about masculinity is sometimes, or in this traditional form, is this idea of a a numbness. We are not allowed to feel. Is what you said earlier, Bilal, that we're not given the chance to feel. We feel like we can't feel things. We have to be numb. We have to give ourselves this pain threshold because it's expected of us sometimes. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, you guys are bare smart, man. I sat here <laughs> last time thinking this the whole time as well. Like, you just know bare things. <laughs> you watch all these interviews and shows that I've never seen. But I have seen one show, which is actually called The Mask We Live In. Um, and it was this documentary which speaks about, like, what all of you have spoken about. Um, it's about masculinity. Um, and that analogy of of boxing is really interesting. I feel like maybe masculinity is almost like, uh, I don't know, like, I, I definitely don't want to sit here and talk about how hard life is for men um, because it's disproportionately harder for almost everyone else. Um, but also, like, there is a reality, right, that, like, is not great being a man either. It's pretty shit. Um, and I think what you touched on earlier is like from such a young age, like the world is a horrible place and there's, it's almost like you're taught to like expect pain and to be policed into behaving in a specific way. Mm, the thing that I want to understand is why is it that we say that masculinity, like this kind of traditional notion of masculinity, which mm. is often problematic and quite toxic, is our legitimate coping mechanism when, like you said, 
it's you know disproportionately worse for just about well everybody else. Yeah, like it's that's what I I struggle to sort of understand and get to grips with. Yeah, I think I think essentially for me that comes down to a conversation about power, right? Mm, yeah, um, okay. and. And I think everything, everything, like anything in, in its essence, whatever that thing is, whether it's like whiteness or people of colorness or whatever you would call it, like non-white identities or your sexuality or whatever that identity is, mm. if you add power to that thing, yep. like power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely, I think is the phrase. Um, but I think in terms of masculinity, like it is, it is... Like the, I think the conversation around toxic masculinity makes me feel really uncomfortable, mainly because I've done this work for like three years now and I still don't know what non-toxic masculinity is. Like I, I can't give you words that define what the different version of masculinity that's not toxic is because I think the toxic element is the power element rather than like the characteristics or behaviours. So I don't know if it's like, if you take, like I'm thinking of workshops and if I think what the boys write up when we're talking about masculinity, they write like strong or dominant or that kind of, like being strong is not inherently a bad thing. Everyone within their capacity should be as strong as they can be, right? I say that with like Margaret arms, but it's, it is what it is. <laughs> but like everyone should, like it's not a bad thing to be strong, but if you have strength and power, then you have the ability to abuse that strength. And that's when, masculinity becomes toxic and I think like those traits that men have developed are like definitely a lot of them are like self-defense a lot of them are like the world is going to hurt me so to stop myself from getting hurt I'm going to be as resilient as I can I'm going to dominate every situation that I'm in I'm going to be strong I'm not going to have emotions like I'm going to not cry when I see stuff because if I cry that looks vulnerable and then people try and get me but when you add power to that thing like it becomes a really like dangerous thing I think I'm not sure would you I was I was considering this question on the way here like what is the opposite of toxic masculinity and it is an enormously difficult question and actually quite a profound question to to ask I guess the 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 terminology that came up for in my mind for what I was thinking was compassionate masculinity mm -hmm. and I think that's maybe a term which encompasses a couple of things I think if you're compassionate in your in the way that you I mean I think it's I almost think we need to like deconstruct like what is masculinity yeah, I mean yeah. it's like we're, we're all talking about something because we have a shared understanding of what it is but I mean actually in my mind the best kind of masculinity is one where we all have different understandings of what it is it's kind of pluralistic right um, and I think that's what what it comes down to I, I think a compassionate masculinity is one in which you are self-aware of the fact that you have power being a man in this country, being a man in any country, you have an inherent power um, based purely on your on your gender. But also just the fact that, I don't know, I just, for me, I, I'm going to just keep on bringing it back to being gay, frankly, but I, I actually think it's really, genuinely, really um, pertinent in this conversation because as a gay person, you're really confronted by your masculinity at a very young age and the fact that the chances are, I mean, there are there are gay, gay and bisexual and, and trans men who from the very beginnings are like, yep, I'm cool with all of this. Like, yeah, I want to do that. I want to go down to the, I can't even think of any references. I want to go down and eat some meat at the car shop. <laughs> um, what do you guys do? What do, what do straight men do these days? <laughs> Watch uh, Anthony Joshua interviews. Uh, no. <laughs> I was like, who's that? Um, no, no, no. <laughs> Throwing shots at me, you know. No, 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 no. <laughs> Friendly shots. Um, what are we talking about? So, um, no, no, because I think, I think it's really, I actually think it's really pertinent because you're confronted with the fact that you don't relate, yeah. right? 
I was like, what is, like, why am I not allowed to cry? I want to cry all the time. Life is emotional. Life is hard. Like, why am I supposed to be responsible for things? You know, why am I not allowed to uh, socialize with girls? That was a weird thing for me. Why aren't young boys allowed to socialize with young girls? The boys have to socialize with the boys. The girls have to socialize with the girls. And it comes down to these really um, inflexible, and I'm, I'm glad to say that I think that we're slowly starting to um, create less of a binary around this, but these really inflexible cultural ideas that we have around gender. You know, boys are this, girls are this, and that's just that. You can't be in between, nah, not allowed. And you can't be someone who is a boy who, you know, uh, whose, whose expression of themselves is actually more suited to what a girl is or, or the other way around. And as I said, I think we're getting to a point now where, where we're breaking that down. And I think that's really, really great. But bringing it back to, you know, what is the opposite of toxic masculinity? I think it is that acknowledgement of the power but it's also just being, it's being compassionate and it's allowing people's expression of their masculinity to be whatever the fuck they want it to be, right? right? So if someone's like, I'm going to wear a dress today and that's my, that's how I, that's my masculinity. That's how I am being a man. Just to be like, sick. All right. If that's how you want to be a man, good for you. Like, it's not how I want to be a man, but that's, that's, that's what you want to be and it's not harming anyone. Mm. And I think that's, that's the world that I want to live in. I want to live in a world where we, we're not, restricting men and women. I mean, you know, there's no women on this panel, but I think it's the exact, there isn't that element of power so much, but there's the exact same constraints of women, you know, a woman must do this, a woman can't do this, right? Um, but, you know, I, I, I just think, I, I want to live in a world where people can can do that. And I think I think actually having, having this conversation is a part of that, right? Like being able to talk openly about these issues is one of the ways of, 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 of deconstructing them. So we're actually changing the world, you guys. Like, I know you only pay, like, a bit of money and we're in the Curtin Hotel in Shoreditch, but, like, <laughs> this is profound. <laughs> I yeah. think what um, kind of, sorry, what kind of rings true from what you just said for me is balance. So I'm kind of moving away from the idea of masculinity just being attached to manhood mm-hmm. and femininity just being attached to womanhood where I feel like as humans you need to have a mixture of both in order to be balanced and toxic excuse me toxic masculinity I always find words like that hard to pronounce um is all is is kind of I think where there's an overcompensation on the side of the masculinity that it becomes toxic and when you have that lack of balance um and something that kind of rang to what Patrick you were saying about how in kind of like the northeast of England where there was a lot more deprivation that people took to quite violent sports to have, I guess, somewhat of an outlet. I think it's, a, it's interesting that violence is the way in which, I don't know, to me it seems like it's overcompensating due to the lack of masculinity which is attached to being able to provide financially. Yeah, and I think that's what they were sort of getting at as well. Yeah, so there's, there's different kind of areas of our lives in which... Um, we're judged as men, I believe. So in regards to being able to provide financially is one, I think um, there's one definitely attached to like virility and being able to like have as many women or sexual partners wherever as possible. Um, there's so many... Di- <laughs> I just saw a little gun finger. Um, so there's so many different ways that that manifests and if you're lacking in one... <laughs> terrible you shouldn't even laugh at that that's really bad (laughs) but i feel like if you're lacking in one of those areas you tend to overcompensate in one and like violence is one of the most primal one of the most kind of base level ways in which you can assert your masculinity 
it's like power. Yeah, exactly. Power, it's, it's, exactly. Yeah, it's to do with power. And I think like if you feel disenfranchised, you look for ways to exert power over other people, which is kind of why. Anyway, this is a different discussion, but we're talking about sort of um, youth, um, serious youth violence in in inner cities. A lot of that is to do with that. You, these people are disenfranchised. These young kids are disenfranchised. And what do you do? You look for someone that you can exert power over. Mm. The rest of society is so far above you that you know you can't you can't really have any effect on that. But the people that are closest to you, you can exert power over them. Um, one thing that I wanted to kind of put to you guys is um, we were talking about sort of um, why it's sort of difficult to define what non-toxic masculinity looks like. And I think in general, it's quite hard to define what masculinity looks like without, you know, involving those sort of problematic traits. And when it comes to identity, one thing, I guess it's, I don't know if this is like really like a revolutionary thing to say, but when it comes to um, different identities, very often how we define something is by um, positing it against something else. So like if you, colors like you know this is red because it's you know not this color do you know know what I mean so when it comes to masculinity I I think the reason we find it very hard to kind of define what it is is because what we define it off i.e femininity um is something again that I don't think that we really we've figured out how to define properly and very often when we look at femininity the things that we kind of describe masculinity against are things that we as a society sort of deem as kind of inferior or weak or do you see what I mean? So the reason why um, violence is something that is so inherently part, part of traditional masculinity is because um, we, we so, we're socialised to think that women are inherently weaker. Um, the reason why um, not sort of um, tapping into your emotions as a man is such a common thing is because emotions are things for women and, you know, we don't have time for that. It's not logical, it's not rational. Um, so I wonder if it's like this thing of, I mean, this goes back to, again, to what I was saying at the very beginning. I find this discussion on like kind of trying to work out, you know, what is virtuous and sort of assigning it to gender kind of almost fruitless because um, nothing that we are sort of talking about when it comes to like identity here, when it comes to uh, masculinity or femininity are inherently either one of those two. Um, so I, I don't know, what do you guys think? Like, is it... I'm so I'm such button, a button button. No. I'm like the worst interrupter. Like I'm gonna interrupt everyone. <laughs> It'll be good content though. Um, <laughs> I'm gonna forget what I said now. No, uh, what were you just talking about? Uh, uh, femininity <laughs> and how? Oh yeah, I was just gonna make the point, and I always find this so profound. The, the craziest thing is we've made this all up. Mm. We've made it all up, and I just think. It's actually insane. Like, we've made something up and we're now having a conversation about deconstructing something that we've made up, right? right. And fair enough. Like, it's, it's, maybe, it's, maybe it's not fair to say, oh, we made it all up. It has a profound impact on people's lives. You know, men abusing their power it leads to people dying. It leads to horrific and awful um, things in the world. But I guess sometimes every now and again when I'm thinking about these things, it just, it strikes me, you know, this whole thing about pink things being for women and blue things being for men. I found out recently that it used to be the opposite. I don't know if you knew this. I think they just changed it. And like, think about the amount of people's identities now that are that are based in like, uh, yeah, you know, like pink is for women and blue is for men. And, and like people, uh, men being like, I'm not going to wear a pink shirt. And it's like, yeah. well, you know, a hundred years ago, you would have been like, I'm not going to wear a blue shirt. A hundred years ago, you would have been wearing a dress. Yeah. Right? Like legit. Yeah. Like, yeah, well, yeah. I mean, not a hundred years ago. Yeah, Five hundred. Yeah. I'm not an academic. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm out of here. <laughs> But I just, I guess every now and again, I just think 
you know, it is crazy that we also this 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 point that we're making about the fact that that we say that men or you know that that masculinity dictates that men aren't allowed to express their emotions. You know, the the self aware having self awareness and being able to self actualize and being able to feel your emotions is literally what sets us apart from every other human being. And yet, we've told ourselves that we have to restrict the way in which we that men that half of us under half of us have to restrict the way in which we explore and express that. I actually find that confounding. Like, this is literally a thing that makes us unique. And yet we're saying, like, you can't do that. You can't cry. You can't. And it's actually, you know, we keep talking about crying. It's beyond that. It's like, you can't talk, like, when you're feeling anguish, you can't talk about it. When, you're, when you think you might be dealing with addiction, you can't talk about it, right? We talk about crying as if that's a beyond end. It's, it's much more profound than that. As men, we're not allowed to, we have to be in control, we're taught to be in control and responsible for everything all the time. And so when you are feeling shit, that requires you to be vulnerable. And I don't think that men are ever taught to be vulnerable, right? But anyway, my, my point was just that it's crazy to me that we're, <laughs> we're talking about something that we, we all just made this shit up. Yeah, I think, yeah, you hit the nail on the head. Um, I mean, a lot of, you know, what we take for granted is a social construct, like it's it's socially constructed. And I think it's important to remember that these things were created for a reason, at least they come about for a reason, whether we agree with the reasons or not, whether uh, we think they serve a good purpose or not. That's just how um, humans uh, and socializing and cultures function. I think what we probably need to start doing is just kind of decolonizing and just kind of reassessing and just being like, why did we do this? Like, mm. why? Why is blue for men and pink for women? Or, yeah. you know, why are men not supposed to talk about their feelings? I think that's, yeah, that's. Yeah. I think every single time I've either been part of or heard a conversation about masculinity, it's come back to this whole nature versus nurture thing. Yeah, yeah, what yeah. we're doing. Mm. Um, but I'm really interested, like, sorry, as you, I've been listening to you guys, but like, I've been thinking more about about the word mask. You weren't listening. You weren't listening. You were a <laughs> I was thinking, I got, I got a bit lost and I was thinking about the word mask, right? Like, what do masks do? And they both protect and shield, but it's also about hiding and performance. And there's this whole performative mm-hmm. nature of masculinity. And I feel like we've started touching on the fact that femininity, masculinity is a spectrum and it's like this different performance that we play. I'm interested specifically given that none of us on this panel are white men in perhaps how that performative masculinity might differ or does it differ at all being a non-white man in this world? And I don't say people of colour because I just hate that term, but like as non-white men in the world, are we still given the same luxury? Are we still afforded the same ability to perform this version of masculinity? No. No. Um, no. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what? Lol. <laughs> I'm reminded of the expression, uh, you work twice as hard, you go half as far. Yeah. Um, And I can only speak about this in a a work context. Um, The the fact that you come to this realization that if you're, generally speaking, like not a white person in the workplace, there's a lot more stuff you have to do to get the recognition. Bro, this is bare painful. Man. In the workplace. I literally tweeted about this the other day. I'm just, oh, mate. Like, and it's like a sharing circle. If. <laughs> if. If. You cry on the paddle and show that we're. D- 
deconstructing uh, if, you, if you no it's cool man if you actually sit down and contemplate it it will hurt you if you actually do this I'll tell you something I, I did a bit of travelling last week and there was a lot of preparation up until the run up doing like these I was checking these numbers that I was doing and um, we had a busy start of the year so we forgot to do a couple of things and I told my boss, yeah, I'm going to catch up and do this stuff. And he's a nice guy, but there was a lot of stuff that he didn't do. There was a lot of stuff I didn't do anyway, but I did my bit. I did his bit. I thought I was going to go home early. Got to maybe about half 11 and stuff wasn't done that I thought he'd done. I don't blame him, but it was an oversight on both our parts. When I'm telling you, I almost broke my fist at work because I almost had like a mental breakdown at work. I started screaming in the office and I said, if somebody, I thought about it, I said, if somebody were to see me, they'd catch me mad. And I said, this is the, I'm not going to, I'm not going to swear because I, I don't want to, but basically I was just like, this is the, fuck it. This is the bullshit I have to put up. <laughs> I was like, this is the fucking bullshit I have to put up with during moments like this. I'm here at fucking whatever time. I checked Uber today, like, because I was doing some expenses. I was like, this is the time I left because of this fucking moment, right? I had to do this. And I was like, there is some kind of pain threshold that you have to take on yeah. as part of that. And that's painful and I don't like to think about it. And I was, I was talking to a much older brother of mine. Like he's, he's basically, he's touching 40 now and he's got three kids and he's a partner at a law firm. And we were talking about this. And I said, I'm only beginning to realize this. And he said, welcome to the real world, son. He's a, he's, um, he's a Nigerian man. He married a Jamaican wife years ago. Um, and he said, this is, this is how it is. This is how it is. You have to do stuff. You have to work so hard just to get recognition. Reminds me of that. What's that film that Cuba Gooding did? The Submarine. No one know what I'm talking Fire about. Fire Temptations. Yeah. No, no, not, not Fire and Temptations, man. <laughs> You know, no, 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 there's this movie that Cuba Gooding film. I know, boy. Men of Honor. There's, there's this thing here yeah, where he, he, was, he was trying to be um, a diver. Yeah, and he was the only black guy trying to be, it was, I think it's Men of Honor, I think so. And um, he was the only black guy. And there's this um, exercise they have to do where um, they have to basically, obviously they dive into a stretch of water and they have to fix like this component. But there's a, there's a bag of tools that are waiting for, that is waiting for each diver. Um, there's a moral to the story here, you'll see why. Obviously, they didn't want my man to pass. This is still like, kind of slavery times in America. Well, not so, we're past that, but there's still Jim Crow. Thank you, Jim Crow era. Um, so, he had the components, but the, like the, the bag of tools, they just splashed it across the water. So he had to go looking for it. Took the guy nine hours to do it. Took like everyone else an hour to do it. He came out with pneumonia. He did it in the end. But that's like a metaphor for life sometimes. Like you're like, oh, why is my, my white counterpart doing kiki and laughing and laughing and laughing? Sometimes, yeah, I look at, sometimes I'm laughing. I'm like, I just want to bust your head open. I'm not going to lie. That's how I feel sometimes. Yeah, like, you don't see me. And I've, I've told people this at work before. I'm like, listen, because there have been times I've told people, well, you need to shut the fuck up. Don't do it every time because you lose your job. <laughs> but, and I told people, look, is this anyone your official has a... advice to the audience? No, 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 no. Be careful. Be careful how you move in it. But I tell people, if you've got a problem, come and find me in the evenings when no one's working. Come and find me in the weekends when no one's here. You come around the corner at work. No, I tell people, if you've got, I tell people, like, where, I tell people, where are you where I'm here? 
Where, where are you when I'm here? And that's the twice as that's the that's the twice as far. Yeah, that's that's true. You understand? That's the expression. That's the yeah. thing that gets to me. So the answer to your question, I'm giving you one context, but we spend the majority, not a majority, but we can spend the majority of time of our lives at work. You understand? And it can really, really get to you sometimes. You know what I mean? Yeah. So the answer is no. We don't have the same. We can't move the same. They can laugh. They can do kiki. I can't laugh and do kiki. <laughs> you understand? Can't laugh and do that. I think you're doing kiki now. I think because I'm with it's cool, isn't it? So, yeah, <laughs> he's in company, he's in company. Yeah. I think that there is there is definitely this idea of which we talk about at work, right? Of like the extra like emotional and cognitive labor that you have to do to navigate the same spaces as people who don't face the same oppression as you. Um, and I think, like, don't get me wrong, like white masculinity is still hard, right? It's still shit, and and that's probably a lot of the reason why it takes the form that it takes. But that also comes with like, or comes without all of those extra oppressions that then mean that you are limited in other ways. And and sometimes like I heard, I don't remember who it was. Was it um, uh, Chimamanda? I'm not going to say the full name, but Chim. Chim. Um, Chimamanda was talking on a panel at the South Bank, I think it was. And she said, she gave a really good analogy of like somebody who has to walk into a shop. So if, if a woman of colour walks into a shop and somebody, or no, a man of colour walks into a shop and somebody, the security guard is following him around, or not even that, the, the person behind the till is not being nice to him. And they're just being rude. Like the things that you have to think about, I imagine as a white man are like, I don't know because I'm not a white man, but or maybe this person's having a bad day or this person's an asshole. But as when you add race to that, there's also another thought of like, maybe this is racism. And even if it's not, like that's still incredibly taxing when it happens every day, all the time. And it's not that anybody's even necessarily doing anything to you. It's just that it's a thought that has to be processed because you have to understand your place in the world. Um, and I think that is probably where the difference lies for me in terms of like, there's just extra shit to think about and um, which is like incredibly inconvenient and very draining. So sometimes I just leave work early because it's long, it's long for man, it's long for man. I had to deal with racism on the way here. So I'm going home guys, sorry. You man are giving out some dodgy work advice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Do you know what, you, you have to just make your own rules guys because they don't want you to win. <laughs> they don't want you to win. I was going to say, it's also really exhausting to have to figure out which aspect of yourself is possibly in play. Because I have this a lot where someone's treating me like shit and I'm like, are you treating me like shit because you're having a bad day? Oh, are you treating me like shit because I happen to have more melanin than you? Or are you treating me like shit because I happen to sleep with people that are a different gender to you, right? And that can also be really exhausting. The the, the point that I wanted to make, I was speaking to um, Lady Phil, who's the founder of UK Black Pride. If any of you have not been to UK Black Pride, please go. Even if you're not LGBT, it's a really fucking fun day. Um, but Lady Phil founded UK Black Pride about 11 years ago and it's flourished into this amazing space for um, LGBT people of colour to be celebrated because we're not really celebrated as much as we should be within the community despite being at the forefront of fighting for rights, fighting for the community's rights both within this country and within the US and in many other Western countries where there are diaspora communities. Anyway, we were having a conversation about, I was concerned about, uh, I'm trying to get this ambiguous to protect the identities of those in the story. <laughs> yeah, spill the seat. No, I'm not going to. Um, but basically, uh, an opportunity had come up, and I was worried about taking the opportunity because I didn't want to uh, take it when I thought that it should go to a queer woman of color 
or a queer trans person of color. I kind of felt uncomfortable with the idea of taking the opportunity and I, 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 I called her for advice because she's an extremely wise woman. Um, and we had a really actually profound conversation where she pointed, the, pointed something out to me, which I hadn't actually, I, I kind of knew, but I hadn't considered. And she was like, when was the last time you saw a positive story in the media about a queer man of color? Wait, when was the last time you saw a positive story in the media about a man of color? And she was like, men of color are portrayed in this country always as the aggressors, always as the people who are, who are fighting, who are threats, who are trying to, you know, uh, bomb you, who are trying to stab you. Um, the media have weaponized this, this view of men of color as, 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 yeah, as being aggressors. And the point she was making was, you know, there, there is space for men of color in these conversations that we need more positive um, portrayals of, of men of color and of queer men of color. But um, I found that really profound. I knew that because of the fact that I deal with the ramifications of that on a day-to-day basis, as all of you do as well, I'm sure. But actually hearing that from someone uh, who wasn't a man as well was really, um, it, it just, it was really meaningful for me. And I'm wondering if anyone else, I don't know, that just, that was really meaningful for me. I just had one thing to say, actually, and it kind of goes slightly against the grain of what everybody said here. Um, a bit of controversy. Um, but we were, we, we were talking about this guy how... always does controversy, you know. Yeah, Every time, it's different never angle. Happy, like, <laughs> we could all be saying the same no. thing. It's a nice, happy conversation. <laughs> Patrick has to open That'd his mouth. That'd be a boring podcast, man, if everyone just agreed. Come on. Um, no, I'm not trying to be controversial. Um, what I was going to say was, um, when it comes to masculinity and our relationship with... Uh, white masculinity um, I think it is our shared masculinity that allows us like a bit of leeway when it comes to white men but that leeway is through kind of like a, a lens of like fetishization so yeah so I, I feel like when white men speaking generally when when white men interact with black men and um other non-white men, but particularly with black men, because this is something that I, so quick story, when I was, when I was like 12 years old, I remember like, that's when like, you know, everybody was sort of like starting to go through puberty and everything else. And um, you're in the change rooms after, after PE, right? And like all the guys, I just remember suddenly everybody was obsessed with like the size of their, like their manhoods. So that was a weird thing to me because I mean, but whatever. Um, it was just a bit odd because I was just thinking about going to the next lesson. I had to cream my skin and all that stuff. Like, I wasn't thinking about that. Everyone, yeah, I'm like, because I always used to get in trouble because I used to take too long moisturizing and combing my hair and everything like that. Because you only had five Is that why you're always late for the podcast? Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I still haven't got, I still haven't got good at that. But I remember everyone was like, oh, yeah, um, my, my thing is this big and rah, 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 like this inch. And, I'm like, and then they were like, oh, I bet Pat has a massive willy, innit? I'm thinking, why and like sooner rather than later I realize this because obviously I'm a black guy so I feel like there is this kind of camaraderie that we have with white masculinity that kind of grants us privilege over femininity um but that is through a lens of fetishization like it's not like a lot of the time, it's not like true camaraderie. So it's a falsehood, basically. Not yeah. falsehood, but there's pretense to it. Yeah, of course. Yeah, exactly. it's, it's, it's fetishization for me. Like in the same way, like when you're playing sports, again, like a traditionally masculine activity, 
oh, you're the black guy, so you must be fast. I'll put you on the wing. Put him on the wing. That's what I mean. I knew he was going to say that. So all of these things, like, when you're growing up... I feel like every black guy has played on the wing. Yeah. And I don't like playing on the wing because you've got to run a lot, and I don't like running a lot. But they thought that I like running a lot. But my point is, it's like, you find your way in via this kind of, like, fake kind of friendship kind of camaraderie. Um, So it does grant you a privilege, but it is kind of shaky ground. So... That was my five minutes of controversy. Mad. Do you know what I'm thinking about? I'm thinking, so kind of want to, I don't want to spend too long on this conversation because I feel like it gets given too much time anyway. But the idea of, well, where do you get your version of masculinity from? And particularly for like non-white men, it's always, oh, it's from your dad or lack thereof, which is all you ever hear is like, you must have got that because you were raised by a single parent. No, no, I wasn't. I had like two parents, you know, like, like, where did you get this idea from is the first thing that I think of. But then also, that, that's the narrative that we hear, that black men, men of colour, act a certain way as men in the world because of this relationship with their fathers. And I'm intrigued to know what you guys think about that. Can I just say, we, we, we actually laugh and joke that, like, um, I'm the only one with a white dad. My dad ain't around, you understand? These lot got black dads, yeah. And Bilal's being the exception, yeah. Their dads are there and present. We just laugh and joke. That's an exception to the rule, do you know what I mean? That's kind of mad because, like, if the press were here, they would say, oh, no, nah, he's likely to have the only one with the dad being there, innit? Nah, bro, don't believe what you hear, innit, man? Don't believe what you hear. Trust me. But um, what's the question again? <laughs> no, okay, so, like, um, nature versus... You just want to add smoke on your own dad, doesn't it? Like... I love my dad, innit? Well, God's working on that one, but I love him still, so... But, um... Uh, right. I mean, yeah. Obviously, not having a dad that does shape your mas- um, masculinity, but it's also nice because well, as you get older, you realize it's nice because of the fact that there's a vacuum. You can kind of make it up. So when J Cole said, first things first, rest in peace, Uncle Phil," I felt that. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Because watching shows like um, Fresh Prince. Cosby show as a young child, not an older child, didn't it? But no, because the Cosby show was a, a, a very good show. It like, was a staple, yeah. And in fact, people talk about the fact that the, the thing that the Cosby show only lacked was the fact that they didn't talk about serious issues in the way that the um, Fresh Prince show did. So it's just a very happy middle-class family. Cliff was a doctor, Claire was a lawyer, you know, that kind of stuff. So that helped me shape my masculinity um, as well. And... Obviously, having a, a, a wonderful mum to go and support me and say, oh, son, you can do this and this. But only, you know, I think mums can only go... They can do their best, but they can only go so far sometimes. They can't They can't relate in a way. Because sometimes I've, I see my dad and he'll just... This is what you're going through. This is what you're going through. I'm like, my yeah. brother, you haven't seen me whenever. All you're doing is just raggedy Christmas birthday card. And you're coming telling me I should be feeling this way. How am I feeling this way? And he'll say, oh, yeah, well, I was once uh, your age. What do you used to say to me? You used to say, oh, I've been your age. You ain't been mine. Wow. So, and I'm like, rah. And it took me a long time to get that. But so there's that kind of element that my mom couldn't supply that just natural instinct, even though she yeah. tried her, her best. God bless that woman, innit? But um, <laughs> so there's that as well. But it's a complex thing. And I think um, because of that absence, there were things to fill me um, in. And so, like, I've never found myself being like, a macho man, whatever that means or whatever. But I realised that's just... A lot of that is sort of... I won't say by design, but I found myself as a as a child enjoying artists like Prince and um, 
<laughs> Rick James, I don't <laughs> Rick James, bitch, you know, like but enjoying no, but enjoying them kind of artists. And I like as a child, I didn't really I didn't realise the connotation of liking those artists or the the, the sexual questionability of those. You don't think about that as a child. I just enjoy Purple Rain. Yeah. Um yeah. So I didn't but that was the kind of and as a kid, I loved enjoying uh Mary J. Blige. You understand? Yeah. Mary J. Blige has got me through some hard times. I'm telling you, I'll tell you, I'll tell you something, yeah. It's real. This guy's crazy. Let me just be open because we we open hearing it years ago. Yeah, my mum she she had she had she had cancer in it. She's she's good now in it, but she had cancer. I'm not gonna lie. Yeah, the first album I played was Four One One by Mary J Blige. I'm not gonna lie to you. That's the kind of that's how I dealt to cope with things yeah, in it, yeah, and yeah, that yeah. in a way shaped my um how how I cope to things in it. I didn't feel the need to go to. And in fact, it was that, and it was running. It wasn't like a a physical thing because I sort of realized. Quite early on, and also because I don't, I don't know, just, just maybe not having the father thing. So it was never, oh, do the football, do the rugby. I did it small, small, but I was more doing like table tennis or running and swimming, these kind of things up here. Yeah. Um, and that shaped me a lot. And maybe a lot of that is the absence, but I don't, I don't feel the absence. I just sort of feel that okay, there was a vacuum. Mum did the best she could. Dad sometimes come in said, two, two, this and this and this, but that's a small thing anyway. So I was allowed to kind of create a path. Yeah. For myself, do you know what I mean? So, do you know, I don't know if that makes any sense, but that's kind of the path I feel, you know? So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you know what I think is like... So, my dad, yeah, is a bad man. He is, like, silent. He very rarely speaks. If any of you in here know my dad, then you'll know that this is, like... He's a scary man, but he's also Does very nice. Know your dad? <laughs> I think so. People at the back. All oh, right, all oh, right. I thought don't try to embarrass to know me. Your don't dad. try to embarrass me. <laughs> Sorry, no. I'm a man. No, I'm joking. <laughs> um, my yeah, my dad is he's he's a silent guy, um, but what I what I think is reflecting on the question. I don't think I needed my dad around to teach me what masculinity was. I think the purpose that he served more than that was showing me where I could deviate from that path. Um, and having him there, it wasn't very often because he's a very like typically masculine man, but seeing him, for example, like be really gentle with my mum or seeing him um, express whatever kind of emotion it was. Or I remember like one thing that really stood out to me was my dad never, ever used to miss work. He's like provider to the T. Um, and I remember the first time I, I have a memory of him being sick and like walking into his bedroom in the morning to bring him like breakfast and being like, Daddy, you okay? And he was like, no, I'm not all right. And for me, that was like, oh, like you're allowed to be like sick. Like you're like, it's not a bad thing. It's just normal. Um, and I think those are the things that I like look to my dad for more than, because the, the world is teaching me how to be masculine. Like I can look at anyone and figure that out. Um, but I think those those moments, like you only see them in the context of like, close relationships because that's when you see a real person right and so I think for me having my dad around was really like examples of like those opportunities to not have to play into that structure or that system um coupled with like being in a house full of women yeah I'd say yeah I was gonna say if if you know fathers are what instills 
traditional masculinity in you that my dad did a shit job. Do you know what I mean? But I have a really good relationship with my dad and we care and love, love each other very, very much. Um, and I do think that your relationship with your, your parents is very profound. It's the first relationship that you ever have as a human being. And so it's very important. And I, I think it does impact you a lot. And I actually have this theory that everyone's relationship with their parents fucks them up a little bit. Like everyone's a little bit fucked up because of your parents, but like everyone is and it's not, it's okay. But anyway. it's fine, it's yeah, it's normal. Um, everyone's fucked up, it's cool. Um, but no, I, 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 um, I just don't think that you're, I think that like perhaps when you're growing up, you do look to your father for a sense of how you're supposed to be if, if he is the only uh, male role model in your life. But I, 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 for me personally, it, it was always where I was like, oh, my dad's like this and he wants me to do this. Okay, I'll do it. And then I would do it, like play soccer or something or football, I guess, in this country. And then I'd be like, I hate this. And he'd be like, yeah, you're, you're also terrible. Let's, you know, let's get you out. Um, and it was just a kind of learning experience where he kind of realized, okay, my son is not going to be my understanding of what, or what I wanted a son to be or what I think a son or a man should be. And we kind of, through my adolescence, kind of negotiated what I was, who I was going to be, um, which also led to me obviously unveiling, <laughs> unveiling, it sounds like it was a party. <laughs> uh, <it> was <laughs> Hurrah, I'm a homosexual. Uh, no, <laughs> it was deeply traumatic and upsetting. Um, but, you know, negotiate, <laughs> negotiating that, that relationship but no I just I just don't I think it's societal and I also think weirdly and I think we were kind of talking about this before I actually think that we just kind of get into the habit of it like it's we're all taught this is the way that we're supposed to be because even you know even as someone who is from a very early age defying you know just really not getting it and really defying a lot of the tropes I guess you would say around traditional masculinity and just like literally like oil and water like just being like oh I don't like it um there's still things that I've internalized around you know I still struggle if I'm going through a hard time to reach out to people because I'm like, got to keep it all in. And I'm like a mental health awareness activist and I still go through periods where I'm like, got to keep it all in because that's what I'm... And then I hear this tiny echo, which is like, because that's what a man does. And I'm like, what, what, what? what? But it's, I think we all have that, right? We all have this kind of almost like you can't put it into words. It's just this understanding of, I think, I actually think that a lot of the, the lot of, a lot of the um, behaviours that we are, uh, through which our understanding of our masculinity is manifested, we don't even understand it's, that it's because we're men. We think it's just what it means to be human in a way because we've not had the self-awareness to understand that it's because we're a man that we've told ourselves that we can't be this way or can't do this thing because no one says, oh, Alex, because you're a man, you're not allowed to do X, Y, and Z. You just kind of absorb it. You just kind of think no one else around me who looks like me is doing X, Y, Z, so I guess I can't do that as well. And so I think that's why I think conversations like this are important because I certainly feel so far, we're not even finished, and I feel like I've learned so much just having the opportunity to, to speak with other men about our, our lived experiences and our understanding of masculinity, and I'm sure the, the audience feels the same. Um, and it's the same thing when I hear women speak about their understanding of femininity and feminism and what it means to them, right? I learn so much about um, about that because, I, you know, it's, again, it's not, yeah, anyway. This the point, I was going to say, like, the point about dads um, and you kind of getting your framework for masculinity from them, like, my dad was, like, active in my life, but kind of, in ways, quite skewed towards, and this is probably an experience that's quite typical from people that have immigrant, like, African parents, where it's very much the focus is education. Yeah. So as far as, like, how my education was going, it was very active, like, um, trying to get me into, like, grammar school and, like, just, just being very active as far as, like, making sure that I'm doing well academically. But that kind of came to the detriment of other aspects of my life. So 
kind of creatively or sports-wise, he wasn't really too interested, it seemed. So, and one thing that kind of came up for me was the whole idea that there's, there's never like really that like conversation. You see, like in movies and stuff, there's there's the image of your dad teaching you how to shave or teaching you how to play football, whatever the case is. They don't, that doesn't really happen. That doesn't really happen in real life. But you kind of, you kind of take on these things through observation, um, kind of unspoken. So one thing about my dad is he is quite, he's, he can be quite reserved at times, but he, and he's not very outwardly expressive of his emotions. And I think subconsciously I've kind of taken that on. And even like observing how he is with my mum, and the way they kind of interact, I don't know if I've subconsciously kind of taken it on in my own relationships, moving kind of as I got older. Um, so yeah, it's, it's never, I don't think, I think it's rarely a conscious thing where your dad sits you down and says, okay, this is how to be a man. But just through observation, you just kind of, kind of through osmosis, you kind of just take it in. No, do you know what this reminds me of? Yeah, it's, it sounds so dumb, but um, there's a, I saw this, this photo of, you know, like fabulous, like M.Y. rapper, yeah? With his son. No, no, wait, wait, wait. There was a picture of him with his son. And you know, Fabulous, is, he's got this, he has this stance, this way he has this thing where he does this with his hands. Yeah. And he's been pose. doing it forever. Like, he, no, he just has this, like this. He just stands like this. Yeah. Okay. And his son, is basically like his right hand over his left hand with a watch showing, yeah? Oh, yeah. And his son was about four or five and doing the exact same thing, wow. how his dad had done it. Now, he said, I never taught my son how to do it. He's just watched me do it over and over and over again. Do you know what I mean? And it's like, yeah, it's kind of like that. I think we pick up or yeah, we can got, pick up. So, I've got so examples just like that. My, I mean? dad's, so, my dad used to do this thing with his face. It's hard to describe, but it's just like a weird, like, um, I don't even want to demonstrate because I just look silly, but he... It's kind of like, it's kind of like, okay, I'll just do it. It's kind of like his jaws... I don't, I don't even know how to describe it. It looks like I, I'm trying to do it now, like, like that. But you can't really see from the back. But it's weird, like, he's kind of showing his teeth. Um, and I'd noticed that after a while, I started doing that as well for a little period of my life. So I think you do kind of copy what I got, they're doing as well. I got pairs of them from my dad. The way he eats corn, like, he picks each kernel off with his fingers. <laughs> and he scratches his head all the time when he's stressed. And like I do that stuff a lot. Loads of things I've picked up from him. But not because he's ever said, this is what you need to do. Just because that's how I see he functions. But I think I also picked up stuff like that from my mum. I'm not sure. I think so. I learned how to kiss my teeth from my mum. I'm not going to lie. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. that one she had to curb correctly as a child. She's like, you can't keep just, yeah, just because you hear me do it on the phone doesn't mean you can do it in school. <laughs> Teachers will get you in trouble. I was like, what do you mean? She's like, you're learning it. But, yeah, that's one example. So, but it's just mad. I think as kids, we're so um, we're so malleable, right? And so we pick up the obvious things, the small, innocent things, but we can also pick up really horrible things as well. So, like, charity begins at home, that expression, yeah? You'll see kids say the maddest things in school. You're thinking, oh, where did you, where did you get this from? I'll tell you, in fact, I had this story that just came in my head now. Nursery. I was in nursery, yeah? My mum reminded me of this story the other day. I had this food. Apparently, I told the nursery, this food is fuck. I'm three <laughs> to four years old. They called up my mum. They said, ah, oh, mum. Tommy died from early, boy. <laughs> they said, oh, mum, where did you get this from? She said, my mum's like a saint. She doesn't, you know, doesn't swear, doesn't drink. My dad now, on the other hand, yeah. 
said, my son, I don't swear. I don't do this. They said, listen, you know me for a long time. You've never seen me swear. Um, they said, however, he may have spent some time with uh, his dad at his nan's house. They said, okay, fine. It never happened again because my mom was like, you can't. I was like, what does it even mean? She's like, I'm not going to tell you what it means, but you used it so well. How can a three-year-old say this food is fuck? <laughs> can you imagine? It's used so perfectly because... And apparently, I dashed the food in the bin anyway. So this is, I think she was just saying that part for effect, but that's like, we're so, we're so malleable, I think, as, as children. And I think we can pick up good traits of masculinity. We can pick up bad traits, even femininity as well, because it's, it's a yin and yang, do you know what I mean? It's not, we've, we have to be careful not to speak about our masculinity. It's just, no, no, it's a, spe it's a spectrum thing, do you know what I mean? Um, and so I, you know, one of, the, one of the nicest moments I think I had um, going with my dad, I've spoken about this before, going football. I used to go to see um, West Ham a lot with my dad as a kid. And I remember probably one of the first times I went, I think I, was, I wasn't seven, I was about to turn seven. And I remember um, West Ham lost the game. We played Everton, actually, at Upton Park. I remember it was mad. It was, like, it was mad the memory, innit? But I remember West Ham scoring. And I just remember, like, my dad just kissing me on the cheek kind of thing, actually. Um, which he's, he's never had the problem to give me a, a hug and, a, and whatever. He's never had that problem. That's the thing I'll give him credit for, despite all his flaws. He's never had that issue. That's kind of one of the nice moments of being able to express yourself and learn and subconsciously learning that as a child as well, that it's okay to express yourself during moments of happiness and actually it's all right to do that, do you know what I mean? I think, Patrick, you were saying one time, you saw, you saying you saw this video on Twitter about two boys like just seeing each other for the first time or in a long time and they just the way they hugged each other like yeah, the love was, was like, so pure yeah I, I think they were little kids actually and I was like I wish we did that when we saw each other after like a few weeks you know like just, we do man like, 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 the like, they, 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 and that's the thing that's the thing we can um, oh. so let's start doing it man yeah. let's wow <laughs> let's run and hug each other oh. when we see each other for the first time I'm, like, romantic. I'm gonna give you a hug after but you know what I wanna throw it to the audience in a second for yeah. like questions but Hopefully I've got an anecdote that kind of wraps up a lot of the things that we've spoken about. And it's from my own my own like personal life and journey. This this kind of a trigger warning. So if anyone, again, we kind of mentioned suicide and stuff, but this story is kind of a, around that as a topic. Um, but for me, I didn't have a good relationship with my dad for much of my life for reasons that I now understand so much more. I was raised in like a Jamaican, well, I am. I'm, I was raised in a Jamaican household. And anyone that knows Jamaican households know like, there's like the women are running things at home. Like everything is run by women. And my family is like 95% women. I don't know why, but no one seems to have sons. That just doesn't happen. Um, and But my dad was at work a lot of the time. So I was raised mostly by women. And because of that, not seeing him, I had like this tension with who my dad was and why he wasn't around. Um, but everything I knew about him and know about him until recently was that this is a, like a strong man. Like he's bringing in the money, like he's working really hard. He's got like these strong 10, like normal, typical masculine values and traits. Um, and that's what I thought it was to be a man because I had this idea of strength, which is something that we keep talking about. And the moment that I realized exactly what masculinity meant to me was a moment that mask fell off for my dad. And behind that mask of like strength was like true weakness. And that's when I realized what strength actually was and what masculinity was. Um, and my dad, I was at Nando's one day, because of course, and I was eating Nando's with my boy and I get a phone call from my mum. My mum's like panicking, being like, can you come home quick? And I was like, sure, why? She's like, your dad's just attempted to kill himself. 
I was like, okay. So I like left Nando's, the first time I ever left like half-eaten Nando's in my life. And I left Nando's and went home. And when I got home, like my mum was panicking. My dad was running around the house um, trying to find anything sharp that he could like kill himself with. Um, this is after taking loads of pills, but then vomiting them up because luckily he took too many. So he threw them all up. And we spent much of the afternoon, like literally running around my house trying to hide things from my dad so that he wouldn't do this. Um, fast forward, you know, a couple of weeks, my dad's sectioned and he's in like an institute near my house. And I went to see him. It was the first time I'd gone to see him since the day that the since that day and the police had taken him. And I hadn't gone because I'd been sort of like building up for myself. Like, oh, maybe I, you know, how do I, how do I bring myself to go? Which is interesting in itself regarding masculinity, like why I couldn't go and see my dad there. And I went to see him and he was like lying on the floor in the room, just like huddled up like this and asked me if I could shave his hair. Now I'm not a barber, like I'm actually not very good. So don't ever ask me to shave your hair. But my dad asked me if I could shave his head. And there was a one moment in my life where suddenly that, that power balance had shifted. Yeah. And suddenly, like, I'm seeing my dad for who he is. Like, this is my dad at his worst moment of, like, weakness, which is not a word I like, but worst moment of weakness in the way that I've seen him before. And we talked about, he literally said to me that, like, his, my whole life, he'd been trying to prove to me what, like, a man should be. And he was really upset that he didn't have a job, that he wasn't able to provide, that all of those things that being a man is supposed to be about, he was no longer capable of doing. And that's what had driven him to the point of like feeling that low that he wanted to take his own life. And in that moment, it was the first time that I saw behind like this mask that he'd been wearing forever. And this was like a year and a half, maybe two years ago. And it was the first time that I understood that masculinity was just this performance. My dad had been playing up to it forever. And at that moment, I was like, oh, snap, none of that was even true because that wasn't even this man, like this is him. And since then, like I've come to have like a really good relationship with him. And we're like, we're boys, man. Like he calls me mate, which I find weird. Like I don't know if, don't know if anyone else's parents just like, and now you might be at that age now where suddenly your parents are like asking you for advice. And I'm like, what is this, man? Like, no, like I can't be telling you what to do. Like, how does that work? Um, but we're now at this like really lovely stage in our relationship, all of that because I was able to see Beyond the Mask. Um, and I think in this conversation, what's come out a lot is us talking about this performative nature of masculinity and like where we get it from, like nature versus nurture and our own relationships with ourselves as like men who aren't white in this world and what that might be like. And I think I've learned so much from every single one of you, man, because you guys have so much to share. Um, can we give a round of applause for like our guests and our panel? <laughs> And we've got like, how long have we got? We've got about 10 minutes. Oh. 10, how, what? I thought it was a present. You want a present? Oh, I'll give you a present. <laughs> man, you're too fast, man. You're too fast, man. You are so fast, you know. You're too fast, You demand man. so much. I love it, man. I love it. Next time I see you at work, I'm going to give you a present. Um, this guy's too fast, But we've got man. about 10 minutes, no presents, um, left. And I'd love to, if people in the audience have questions for like the panel. Wow, straight up. Super um, quick, okay. Yeah, just Tom, do you want to pass out the mic? I think, I was just thinking, like, going forward, how would you guys define masculinity masculinity for yourselves and for, like, any kind of, because obviously you guys are getting older, for, like, the younger generation to have, <laughs> you to get older, you die. found one grey hair in my head, I'm, like, scared. <laughs> but, like, so how would you define it for yourselves going forward and how would you kind of get those who are younger than you and obviously you guys have got the podcast and you've got younger guys listening to you how would you define it like how would you get them to 
kind of take off the mask and like try to define it for themselves as well? I was, I, I don't know if I'd, I'd define it, but there's definitely an like an extra element I would I would teach to the younger generation, which is one, um, be comfortable in your emotions, feel a different range of emotions, um, and don't be scared to feel that different range of emotions, because um, sometimes, like kids can get angry for feeling things they've not felt before, and sometimes that just needs a bit of guidance and being like, look. This is what it is. Not always going to get it right as, a, as an elder, but letting them feel different things and letting them just be, be comfortable. Like, I remember... I remember this is one of the weird things, but, like, I remember, like, going to a nail salon or with my mum when I was really... when I was younger. And I said to my mum, oh, is it all right if I try the, um, the red nail polish? And she said, yeah, sure, why not? And it's like, I'm four. I was four years old. My mum was like... If you can probably think, oh, I asked about this, said, look, I'm not thinking about sexuality. You're four years old. You want to try nail polish. I don't need to be like, no, just try it. You know what I mean? Like, we, we, wiped, we wiped it off when you left. Just, like, let people feel different things and different emotions, and, do you know what I mean? And don't react so typically to things, do you know what I mean? Especially, like, for the younger ones. I don't know. I'm, I don't know. Please no, that's a, that's a strong answer. I, I was going to say something really similar. Um but also slightly different, no, really similar, which is that in like in a lot of the work that I do with boys, um, I think, and also for my, myself and my personal life, one of the things that I hate personally about masculinity is that it's so prescriptive. Um, and it's literally like a list of things that you do and don't do. Um, and that makes me feel really uncomfortable. I think for me, my masculinity is like learning to be comfortable with the truest version of myself. Um, and so whatever the thing is I want to do, which is really hard because then it feels like masculinity is often the thing that stops me from doing a lot of the stuff that I really want to do. Um, whether that's like talking about how I'm feeling or um, playing certain games with my nieces or whatever it might be, I don't know. Um, but I think that the, the answer or the solution to the problem is not giving people a different set of rules or giving them another list that they have to follow instead of this one because this one's bad, but this new one that we've made up is better. I think essentially it's just like giving people space to like figure out who they are and what that looks like for them and then kind of encouraging them in that journey of like self-discovery. Because um, I, I think... I'm going to stop there. I was going to say something, but I'm going to stop there. That, that would be my answer. I don't know if anybody has anything. Yeah, um, I would say um, embracing the things that are traditionally seen as feminine uh, are not inferior, not weakness. Um, I think they're probably the most powerful tools that you can, um, you can take on. Um, so allowing yourself to feel compassion, allowing yourself to be um, open with your emotions, allowing yourself to um, uh, be vulnerable. Um, I think it boils principally down to... Um, Showing compassion for other people is really, really important because I feel like traditional masculinity does the opposite of that. It's the opposite of compassionate. Um, but also that, um, showing that compassion to yourself as well. So, yeah, I, I would say, I don't know if that's controversial, but um, try and be a bit more feminine. You know what? Just one thing that's come up for me is that ever since I've started reaching out to my boys to chat, everyone's got stuff to talk about. And you're like told your whole life is like, nah, you don't talk about certain things with your guys. Like you just don't. But actually, the minute you do, 
like someone else goes, yeah, man, I was thinking about that myself. And you just start realizing that, and guys talk a lot, you know, I think we talk a lot more than people believe that we do. Um, but there's something about taking that first step to just talk to your guys. Um, and I know that's hard, especially for younger guys where you've seen that you're not meant to, but actually all the older guys are probably doing that anyway. But like you're, you don't see that side of that going on. So there's something around taking that first step. I was going to say, and we, I actually made this point before, so feel free to just like walk out. <laughs> that would be a very dramatic response to me repeating a point, but whatever. Um, <laughs> I'm going. Um, but I, I really, I really want to stress this because I actually think it's really important. I, I really just want a world where you can be who you are and who you are is masculine because you're a man. Does that make sense, right? So whether you're, you know, whether you're into things which are feminine or not, because, because you're a man, that is your expression of your masculinity. And I think that sometimes there's this like false, I would consider it a false idea, it's actually a political idea, that somehow by breaking down these binaries and by breaking down these labels, like the world's going to go to shit, it's going to be anarchy. But as we have already established, these are things that we've made up. And we've seen that these things have, you know, particularly when it comes to masculinity, they've fucked up some people's lives really bad. And they've, they've, they've fucked up the lives of the people that have the power. And they've fucked up the lives of the people that don't have the power, who are at the hands of the power. So I think for me, you know, I, I, my masculinity is who I am. It's just simply who I am. And, you know, I am not the most traditionally masculine person in the world, but it doesn't make me any less masculine than anyone else because my understanding and experience of my masculinity is mine alone, right? In terms of, um, in terms of the younger generation, uh, I, um, yeah, I, I really agree with everyone, what everyone said. I try and lead by example. I, I tell all my male friends, I make a point of telling my male friends and family members that I, I care about them and that I love them. It's actually a very uncomfortable thing to do. We're told not to to be that way. Um, but I've actually found the more that I've done it, the more normal it's become. And I have male friends, and also critically here, um, straight male friends, because I think it's even more difficult when you've not had that experience of having to confront your masculinity because of your sexuality, or your gender identity, I should say. Um, who will now say to me, like, oh, like, love you, man. I mean, they still have to put the man on there to make it like not homo, <laughs> do you know what I mean? But you know, incremental, incremental progress. But I really, I actually really think that's, <laughs> I do think it is progress. You know, the, a man telling another man that they love them, it doesn't happen very often. When you were saying before about you remember the first time that you're, or you remember the time that you're dagging because she, I remember the first time my dad hugged me. I remember it so well, not as a child, but as an adult, because it felt so strange and, and, so nice and so lovely. But anyway, yeah, I think leading by example, being compassionate and, and telling people that you care about them, other men that you care about them and love them. Cool. I'll probably just echo like everything that people have said already. Um, I think for me personally, the main thing would be just embracing the full spectrum of my humanity. So not even necessarily putting, to, putting it into boxes of masculinity and femininity, just like embracing every emotion and every um, attribute that comes with being a human. Um, for the generation coming after me I'd say integrity is a big thing and not just in the kind of manly way where it's like I'll oh, be a man of your word or whatever like business deals and that kind of thing but more so being integ having integrity to yourself so even if that if you're feeling like I want to hug my brethren or tell someone that I love them feeling like I can do that like being being um having integrity as far as how you feel and how you engage other people as well um, so yeah, that's what I hope like the younger generation will be able to take on as well. And definitely, like I said, it's something that I want to do myself. So it's, it's yeah. We had a question at the back. Um, can we get a mic down to 
Yeah. Projects. <laughs> hey. Thank you for your question, and it was incredibly sensitively worded and lovely, and I really like you, and we should be best friends. Um, <laughs> meet me outside after. Uh, um, that's a, you know, it's a, a wonderful question. It's also a very profound question and a very difficult question to, to ask. Um, it, it's essentially asking how do people be allies, right, when it comes to, um, uh, I guess, helping um, men to create a version of masculinity which is less damaging and, and, and violent and toxic. I think the onus does lie on us um, because at the end of the day, we, as we've talked, we've talked a lot about power. We do, we do have the power at the end of the day. Um, I think actually there's, I think often men cry out for help in, I think, I don't know how to express this. I think men often cry out for help and it's not interpreted as a cry out for help because no one's waiting for it. No one's expecting it because men are not seen as ever needing to cry out for help. Um, but I think maybe it would to be extra conscious of the fact that uh, men are, are inherently, because they're human beings, emotional. They're inherently, I would like to believe, compassionate and caring and kind. We've all seen, you know, we're talking about our fathers before. We've all seen, I'm sure we've all seen moments of our fathers being kind around their partners, around their children. You know, you see a glimpse of like this beautiful, sensitive humanity and you're like, you, do, you was slapping me around before for not doing my homework. Um, but I, so I guess it's maybe, it's, it's maybe being alive to that fact and encouraging the men in your life to... Um, to explore their emotions. And that doesn't have to be through something like therapy. You don't have to be like, go to a counselor. I mean, they might need to, right? But I think it's um, trying to, um, and I'm really interested to hear what everyone else has to say on this, but trying to give space to the, for the men in your life to, to feel. Um, because actually, a lot of the time, we need drawing out. Um, and what I have found is that when I and many of the men in my life are given that space to feel, um, not only do our lives get better, but the people around us, many of whom aren't men's lives get better because we become more compassionate and open and caring people. So I guess, you know, I, I, I think your question's wonderful. I, I think the onus is still on us and I think that we do have to be uh, aware of our power in the space and in some ways critical of ourselves. But um, I do think there is space to um, support the men in your life to be able to get in touch with their emotions uh, yeah. a bit more, however that manifests I would say, I'd say for women, to echo what you said, it's not your responsibility to, to do any of this stuff. The onus lies with men. 
um, to talk to other men, to have those conversations. Also, there's an element of like potential risk or danger in forcing a conversation in the same way that a man could force that same conversation with another man. Um, so don't feel like there's pressure on you to do stuff. But what I would say, um, practically, be prepared for when it happens. Because in my experience, I would say a lot of women like um, have this really like uh, picturesque, like movie-like view of what it's going to be like when men start to express emotions. And then when they do it, women are like, why the fuck are you getting emotional? Um, and that doesn't help. Just so we all know, like, that's not a good way to deal with it. Um, I would say educate educate yourself. This feels so weird saying this to women because I always say it to white people. But educate <laughs> educate yourself about the issues, right? So, like, if, you're, if you know that masculinity is a problem, like, there are books that you can read about masculinities that will help you to understand what this construct is. It's a social construct. It is, like you said, a lot of it is stuff that we've just made up. Um, figure that stuff out, like, grapple with that, um, introduce that into conversations where it feels safe um and once you've done half of like the housework just stop um and just leave it for the men to do the other half and if it doesn't get done then point out to them that they're not doing it um but i think yeah like practically speaking that piece around like how you handle men when they do express emotion um is really important for me because i think women perpetuate masculinity or toxic masculinity or whatever like power structures like the people who are oppressed by those power structures can perpetuate those things as much as the people who are oppressing um so i think just be like really self-aware of that stuff and and where you can like try not to play into it and like you said creating space for men to like actually express emotions actually like externally process stuff is like really really valuable yeah it's what i would say is quite similar to these two guys um i think it's really important to understand that um men will inevitably express themselves slightly differently to women uh the way that they do kind of um show their vulnerability won't look it won't it, it won't necessarily look the same way that that women do and i i think that's just because of socialization um but one thing i'd stress is that um there is a tendency to kind of trivialize um, the activities that men do um, as just being kind of, they're doing those activities just for um, the enjoyment of that activity. So to give you an example, um, I remember um, I had a girlfriend before and um, I used to play video games a lot. And at first she used to kind of think it was like really childish that I played video games and just kind of time wasting and like, you know, like what's the point in playing video games? Like that's all you ever do when you come home from work. Um, and I mean, I didn't agree with her, but I was just kind of like, yeah, I guess. Um, but then um, you, you, sometimes you have to just kind of be agreeable, right? Um, but then I was like, no, that's not right. And then I saw on Twitter one day, somebody, um, someone tweeted, actually, I know who it was that tweeted, um, a guy called Jude Yorson. Um, he um, edited Stormzy's um, autobiography. Anyway, um, he tweeted something along the lines of, um, People really think that when guys get together and play FIFA online, that they're just there just sort of like chatting shit. But really they're sort of talking about, you know, stuff that they're going through, like relationships, um, you know, stuff that's on their mind. Like, so a lot of what we do um, as men activity wise, um, the pretext of it is like just to go and, you know, like play sports or uh, play video games or do. But while we're doing those things, we're also kind of expelling some demons or at least getting things off our chest i think 
because of the way we're socialized, I think when women tend to sort of, women feel a lot more comfortable just talking about how they feel without needing a pretext. Whereas men are like, let's go and do this thing together. And then when they're there, they might start talking about stuff. Um, so I think it's just about being sensitive to that. I think it's just um, being sort of open to the fact that men will express themselves um, differently and that's okay. It's actually very mad. I often need to go to the pub and that's like my space where I have chats with people and, you know, it's like, right, we need to go to the pub and have a couple of pints and I do it, do it regularly. Like, not to put I'm an alcoholic, but... <laughs> <laughs> but, like, you know, I might often spend one of my two, like, you know, like weekends, I'll spend a couple of hours in the pub just having a chat and sometimes very serious discussions are had in the pub. Um, but I'd say, like, do you know what? The, the weirdest thing is... Honestly, asking someone like, how are you? No, actually, how are you? Are you okay? Can often break down barriers like as a practical way of asking people how they are. Like sometimes you might be seeing someone being a bit funny, being a bit off. And it's like, how are you? No, are you actually okay? No, tell me like, how are you? Because like, how are you is a conversational thing used. You know, often when you say to someone, oh, how are you? You're not expecting them to go and tell you, ah, this and this and this. It's, yeah, I'm okay. In fact, if someone says, no, I'm not okay to how are you, it's like, it's very weird in a conversational sense. But if you say to someone, no, actually, tell me how are you, you could probably throw them off a little bit, you know what I mean? And that can sometimes be an inviting factor. Um, sometimes it happens where I have family members say to me, no, are you actually okay? Tell me how you are. And then you have to actually go into things a little bit. I'm not saying it's always going to work because these guys have alluded to the fact that there's a time and a place. You can't ask me how I am three times sometimes, and I'm not going to tell you. I'm going to be like, fine, fine, fine. We're human beings. But there might be that moment where you say, look, how are you? you know, are you actually okay? And I think it works for girls too as well. It's a two-way thing. Yo, actually, how are you doing? Are you all right? Just let's, let's chat about how you're feeling, how I'm feeling, and stuff like that. I think that can help as well. It sounds really like, stupid, simple, but I think like the how are you question is something that we take for granted. Because we use it in such a conversational sense, especially when we're walking by. Hello, hello. How are you? I'm all right. You're all right? Yeah, I'm all right. Okay, bye. That how are you is a powerful question that we've just kind of dampened down to this conversational thing. Yeah. Also, people in this country ask, are you, are you right? It's like the presumption that you're already you're okay. Right, it's yeah. like, what if I'm shit? Anyway, um, I, I just wanted to make a really quick point um, it, that relates to everything, which is that... Um, uh, hashtag not all men. Uh, not how do I say this? Um, men are a lot of men are. I'm going to say emotionally stunted or emotionally immature because they've not been given the the faculties, the capacities to deal with their emotions from a young age because they're taught that you know they're not supposed to. We're taught we're not supposed to. And so I think the other thing that I would uh, advise is patience because I do think sometimes when dealing with men trying to express their emotions, it's almost like dealing with a child. You're dealing with someone who isn't used to expressing their emotions. They don't know how to do it. So sometimes they're going to lash out or sometimes they're going to refuse you or sometimes they're going to be like, mm, you know, it's it's something that we all, we, we struggle with because we were socialized to struggle with it. So just patience and, and, and I think that comes with compassion and kindness, right? Patience, but yeah. Any more questions? Okay. Uh, okay, you're going to project.
who wants to answer this? Should we try and get like sort of one person to answer each question so we can just get in like as many questions as possible? So anyone want to take this one? Ah, you <laughs> bastard. Um, can, sorry, can you just repeat the last bit? You said that men, men are also victims of domestic violence. So how do we get Yeah. Yeah. I I would say, fuck, that's a hard question. I would say that as, essentially, a new a new form of masculinity is gonna mean that. And I was thinking this earlier, actually. Like when we talk about like strength and courage and bravery as like masculine traits, we often talk about them in the sense of like murdering a dragon or like killing some kind of beast or animal like not murdering you don't murder a dragon you kill a dragon but m killing something like it's always do you know what i mean like you, you're trying to kill shrek or something i don't know but let's talking like but, spiral but, ps1 but, or something <laughs> oh this was a terrible mistake this question is so hard but in 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 that same vein i think what i was saying earlier about those traits not being inherently bad but being that, that thing mixed with power is more problematic. I think in the same way, like reporting that you are a victim of domestic violence, particularly in a world where you're not supposed to be weak, is an incredibly brave and courageous and strong thing to do. And I think until we as a society start to encourage those narratives, like while men feel like other men are going to laugh at them if they say that this thing was done to them by a woman. Like, that thing is never... Like, those statistics will never change. It doesn't mean the crime rates will change. Like, the, the, the amount of men experiencing domestic violence will be the same, right? Or maybe more, depending on how confident men are to speak out about it. But I, I, I do think of, like... The best example I can think of is, like, Terry Crews, right? Um, and, and when he came forward and, and said what he said, there were a lot of men who were like, fuck, I can say that as well. Or like, now it's not as bad. And I think there's something that he embodies, which is like a hyper-masculinity, which then means that all of the men who might look at him and think I'm less masculine than him, then feel like they can say that this thing has happened or admit to that thing. Um, and I think in that sense, that's the way that we're going to change stuff by making, like allowing people to, to do that and still maintain a sense of dignity or um, credibility or... Um, humanity um, and to not feel like that makes them less of a person. I think it's the same issue for women as well, right? I think that's where a lot of unreported statistics about domestic violence come from with women. They don't want to look weak or they don't want to look like a victim. Um, but I think that's like really poignant for men. Um, and, and until we start having those conversations publicly, um, that thing's not going to change. Like I, I can count, I can count on one hand I can count on one finger the amount of my male friends who have ever said that a woman has done anything to them. That doesn't mean it's never happened, but they just wouldn't do it. Um, so I think that's how we change the narrative. I'm not sure if that was a great answer, but I feel like I understand it in my head. So thank you for asking. Questions? Okay. I'm sorry, I told you I'm quite, I know, I'm so sorry. No, because I actually think there's a really um, interesting point to make here, which is that with the Terry Crews situation in particular, Terry Crews, I can't remember the name of the, the abuser, but he it was another man. And I think that's important to point out because I think that, um, you know, we have domestic abuse in same-sex relationships. Um, I, I, I've not experienced it myself, I'm very lucky in that regard. But um, I think that um, 
my experience has been, and this is completely anecdotal and has absolutely no evidence base whatsoever, is, in, in terms of my friends and my community, is that um, gay and bisexual men in relationships that have been victims of domestic abuse are quite likely to report it because everyone that I know who's been through it has reported it to the police or to the relevant authorities. And so I think we, what we have to do is create, a, is create a world in which, because I think the reason that men don't report uh, domestic assault when it's, when it's at the hands of a woman is because they feel like it's compromising on their masculinity to say that a woman did this to me. I think it's, you know, and I, I don't want to, I'm not sympathizing with the fact that, you know, obviously what Terry Crews went through was horrific and abhorrent and should be condemned in every way whatsoever. Um, but I, I, you know, I wonder, what, would it have been as easy for him had it been a woman in power? Um, so I just think it's an interesting point to make because I think, you know, we, we are talking a lot about masculinity and femininity in opposition to one another. Um, and I actually can't think of a high-profile case of uh, a man coming out uh, and reporting, a famous person, let's say, or a, a person in the public eye coming and talking about um, an experience like that. So, yeah. Cool. So we're going to take one, one final question because I just saw the time. So, um, whoa, bare hands, man. Someone else pick because I feel bad. I don't like this pressure. Who wants it really bad? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. You know what? For that, yeah. <laughs> Do you need a mic? Um, no. Okay. <laughs> I think it's um, it comes from a place of uh, insecurity. Um, I think yeah. um, the reason people um, have to exert power is because inherently they are aware, maybe not even aware, um, subconsciously aware of a lack. Um, so to compensate for that, um, they they have to oppress, exert, exert power over people. That's my short answer. Yeah. Um, I think... Uh, it's a really hard conversation to have like right at the end of the show in like three minutes. Um, but I think essentially, or I don't know, you might do a better job of this than me, but I think that we, when we're talking about, so if we're talking about power as a thing, like it's really hard to talk about that and remove it from the context in which it's exercised. And so if we're talking about our context, which is like white supremacist, capitalist, imperialist, what's the other one? Patriarchal. Um, Yep, sorry, that is the one that we're actually talking about. Um, then I think, I think that um, I was trying to remember the exact bell hooks quote, but I don't like books. Um, I think that yeah, to, to talk about that, to talk about power in that context, I think that um, there's a, there are a lot of things that people do because that's the way, or their explanation for it will be that's the way that the world works, and this is how you get ahead. Um, and so a lot of the time when people are flexing power, it's not even malicious. Like it's not necessarily because they're saying, I hate you and I want to oppress you. Often it's because they are ignorant to, to the issues. They're ignorant to how their power affects other people. Or sometimes they're aware. And like I said, they are just assholes and they don't care. Um, and yeah, I think, I don't know if there's, if there's like a really short answer to that question, but I think 
those people, in, for the most part, in my experience, those people just need education. Um, and that that education and that understanding of like the framework and the worldview changes a lot for those people. And once people are aware of their power, they then have a decision of what they're going to do with it um, and whether they're going to weaponize it or give it up or invite other people into that space. Um, and I think when we can do that, we, we invite a lot more people to like, or we invite a larger group of people to, to use their power in ways that are beneficial to everyone. Um, um, but yeah, I think people who are in that position and then still make those decisions are just not very nice people and we should can I, wait for them to die. Can I quickly just sort of counter supplement what you said? Because I agree with a lot of what you said. Um, but also I feel it's kind of important to kind of acknowledge that... Um, damn, my mind's gone blank. Um, <laughs> he's won. No, 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 no. Um, it's important to acknowledge that um, people... Damn, my mind's really gone blank. It'll come back to me. Cool. Maybe in the closing comment. Yeah. Um, which is happening right now. So you better think quick. Um, you know what? Like the last thing just to add on that is the quote that I love, which is when you're accustomed to privilege, equality feels like oppression. That, um, okay. That's what it was. That's what... Okay. You can, oh, you that's can, what you... all of you were going to say. <laughs> Interesting. Um, but to me, that, that sums up this, this sort of conversation, right? Because if the world's set up for me to operate this way, perhaps I don't even know that I'm being oppressive in the moment because I'm just so used to this being my privilege and power and I'm so used to exercising that. The minute someone else takes up a little bit more space and I'm going to fight for my space because I'm used to that. And that's something to think about. Yeah. But you know what? I want to give a round of applause to the audience because thank you so much. Those are really good questions. And um, I want to wrap up just by saying like, we don't have the answers, right? Like, obviously, I hope you've got that from us. Like, we don't have the answers, but we're ready to explore and start thinking about what the answers could be. Because I think if you don't have these conversations, then how do you ever move forward, right? And as a podcast, like, we didn't set up to be like, we're going to give you facts and figures because that's not who we are and that's not what we know. But we have life experience. And I believe that life experience needs to be shared. Um, in the last year, like, we've had a great sort of time bringing on incredible guests and like these guys are just like testament to the caliber of people that we're now talking to so can we have a huge round of applause for like Alex and Ben like these guys are these guys these guys are like beyond like this level of conversation um like just to wrap up both of you quickly plug yourselves like where can our listeners find you Physically? No, I'm just kidding. Uh, my address is... In my house. Uh, so, I, to be honest, like, we were just talking about this. I'm terrible Instagram, but if you use Twitter, I'm at Alexander Leon, but it's actually... I need to change it. It's A-L-X-N-D. Just type in Alexander Leon, you'll find me. Yeah, it comes uh, up. Huh? It comes up. It does. I, I just... I'm discovering that I'm famous. Yeah, right? you are. <laughs> this is great. Um, and I also have a YouTube channel. Uh, so, it's again, it's Alexander Leon. Um, if you're struggling to... There's a lot of Mexicans with my name. So, if you're struggling to find me... Um, nothing wrong with Mexicans. Love a Mexican. Uh, Mexicans have been inside me. Oh, don't keep it in there. Um, oh, yeah, panicked. Uh, so, Alexander Leon. And then anything literally just like LGBT or racism and something will come up. So, thank you all so much again for your questions and for your time. It was a, actually a real joy. I am at the real Ben Hurst on everything. Um, so that word again is at the real Ben Hurst. Uh, it's not a word, it's a phrase, sentence, I don't know. Um, and you can also search hashtag the litmus podcast and find us on our own podcast, Talking Shit. Um, and that is all, I think. Do I have more socials than that? No, I'm going to have a website soon. So look on my website when it comes. It will be link in bio. 
cool, man. Yeah. Can we? Yeah, yeah. I just like love questions. And I was just going to say, like, if you want to ask us questions afterwards, him. I just, yeah. just love him. Like, come and talk to us, please. Like, yeah. I, I need some new friends as well. So, wicked. And also, on that, like, no, sorry, no, no, sorry, no. sorry. With, who are you on this? I've, do you know how long I've spent searching for you guys on social media? No, but the, the names are not underneath and the colors are not they the are. right people. They Some are. of you aren't even on Instagram. No, okay, all right. That's so true. These, yeah. these you guys, guys are moving blue bro. I no. don't even know who you are. <laughs> these, I'm to find you for time. These are our Twitter handles. So tweets by Bilal, that's Bilal. Slim Wednesday, that's Kweku, because he's born on Wednesday. Obviously. Carioca Londrina, that's me, because I lived in Brazil for a while. And I thought you yeah. lived in Brazil. Okay, cool. So you don't even know who we are. Sorry. So that's where the problem lies. And obviously, research, Tom, known as Kwame, but he doesn't use Twitter anymore, so um, he's come off the grid. So that might be where you went wrong. But um, you can find us at OTB Podcast UK. Um, that's on Instagram and Twitter. And then uh, email us if you want to send us an email. We love emails. It's, um, we do. We do. We love it. We get a lot of, we got, we, no, we get a lot of really lovely emails. Honestly, it's like life affirming, or at least for what we do. Um, it's otbpodcastuk at gmail.com. Shoot us an email. Um, yeah, man. That's our plugs. Yeah, cool. Um, by the way, the bar's going to be open to 11. And I know it's Monday, but like, have a drink, man. Like, treat yourself. Also, it's our birthday. It's our and first year birthday. This is our come first, yeah, stay our first have a, anniversary. Have so we're going to be having a drink. Yeah, yeah. Um, but thank you so much. It's been wicked. It is over. Yeah. It is That's over. it, guys. Thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs>